Where are we at? What do you want to do? Uh, we're going to do the show. What part? Uh, Dale Jr. Download. All right. Ready? That one. You know me. I get fucking weird. Big pickle. It doesn't really beep, 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 bother you. Uh, the size. Some of them are way too big. Mm. There's some that are just gigantic. I'm just not a pickle person. The driver can't get it up Wham. when they're in the seat of the car. But they're all they're all fun. Pop. I just can't get over the pickle thing. Pop. Just can't loosen up. You see those big muscle guys that are sitting there, you know, straining and getting that thing latched on properly. And just let it happen. I don't really have. I, I don't know which one's the best. I mean, the newer ones. Sorry. Sorry. I got a swollen head. And boy, we don't know what it is. If it could be metal. And there's some that obviously do do it, but there's some that are like, absolutely not. I won't. Dude. I got this like dent in my ass at your taint. Yeah. It's good as sex. No, no. It was crazy. Nobody. Dude. And I mean nobody. Wants a leaky seal. Well, that's not what Kyle Petty said. What the f*** has Kyle Petty got to do with this? <laughs> Never been more ready. Oh, my God. <laughs> Mike, it's, it, that, that, that feels like to me that it's been a, a work in progress for months. This feels I don't like know how me. you put something like that together. I don't even know where you start. This feels like me, somebody that's going out the door and doesn't have to uh, apologize got- for anything because this is Matthew's <laughs> last show got- and he's going out with yeah. the bank. I got tears in my eyes. That was so funny. One Matthew. last time, baby. One last time. It is Matthew's Gotta last show. Got to make you laugh. Matthew. I swear, though, man. That, those are hilarious. We never know what he's going to come up with, and then uh, that's going to be that's that's that is the uh, that's like the perfect example of what like it's going to be hard to replace, right? Because nobody, I mean, nobody's that creative, or is that has that sick of mind, <laughs> Alex? I know you don't. My, that's that's uh, he's got a lot up there. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a lot of things up there. Just <laughs> hanging around. Did that feel good to get that out there, Matthew? <laughs> <laughs> that feel good for you? <laughs> I've got a whole, like, curling. We all have a whole library of funny crap you guys say. Okay. Half the time you don't hear. Yeah. I don't remember deal. a single thing. Other than the Kyle Petty deal at the end, obviously, that was last week. But I don't remember saying any of those things ever. Yeah. I don't remember Dale saying them. I know. No, no way did we have an entire conversation about pickles, but he made it <laughs> right. He, when did we talk about built, pickles? He built the conversation. When around. did I talk about a leaky seal uh, <laughs> in an ad read for Valvoline? And it's great to get uh, pickles and taint in the same episode. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> he don't care. He's he going. He, he ain't gonna be here next week. He don't care. <laughs> he ain't beeping a single word. Just yeah. so you know, he's no, going. We're, out. we're beeping. Hey everybody, it's Dale Junior. To Dale Junior. <laughs> Download uh, in the Bojangles studio with uh, my co-host Mike Davis, Matthew Dillner. Um, you are a piece of work. <laughs> yes. Yes. Alex is here, um, and it's going to be a great show. We got an incredible guest. Randy Lanier is coming in here. Randy won the 1984 IMSA championship uh, and then went to jail. Long time. Uh, a long time, 27 years. Uh, he has a fascinating story about how he funded his entire career in racing, smuggling drugs, and he's going to come in here all the way, I think, from Florida 
to tell us that story. We're really, really lucky. I've been wanting to get Randy here for a long time. It, it's just fascinating. Uh, and reading about him and watching some of the documentaries and so forth just gives me more questions. And Randy has a book. Uh, it's called Survival of the Fastest. It's out today. Big old book. I hope I get one. And because uh, I'm sure there's way more details inside there than we've ever heard and that we even hear today. So Survival of the Fastest. Uh, Randy's story, uh, if you want to check that out. I uh, can't wait to get him in the room, but uh, let's jump right into some Dirty Air. Dirty Air. You got it. Dirty Air is brought to you by Filter Time. There's no better way to deal with Dirty Air than with a filter subscription service that takes care of the hassle and takes that out of buying air filters for your home. They're delivered right to your door. So every time they show up, you know when to change them. Go to FilterTime.com and subscribe now. But this is our dirty air. Dirty air. So let's go. Let's talk about it, man. We had a great episode last week. Big, uh, big, big attention. Uh, we got a lot of reaction and, and feedback about our argument. Yeah. People were like, "Hey, man, more of that." Not more. so much. Not so much who won the argument. Basically, uh, yeah, we want more you and Mike arguing and fighting. We can give them that. Well, <laughs> I think we absolutely could. We uh, could if we just rolled on our whole life. Yeah. I mean, you know, and by the way, I didn't feel like that even got heated. Did you feel like that was heated? Uh, I didn't feel like it was heated. <laughs> Everybody else in the room agrees it was heated. Yeah. But I just say, you and I have and, that rapport. That I, I don't worry about that stuff. Like, you and I can ha- speak our mind. Me and Mike have argued so many times that we're very comfortable <laughs> going to that space. Yeah. yeah and, that's, and, that's fair. And, and, and walking it back. Frankly, I'm surprised it hasn't happened more on this show. I know, but we don't really get into current event debates and stuff like that too often. But, you know, yeah. maybe it's something we should incorporate more. And I think now that it's easier, I think, too, when, when, we're, when I'm working the NBC side of the, side of the season, we're way more in tune with, um, you know, kind of current events and stuff as far as what's going on. And I don't know. It's, uh, it just feels like the deeper we get into the season, the, the bigger the storylines, the more intensity that you're seeing in the sport as uh, we're getting you know closer to the playoffs. It, it, it's same for our show. It kind of ramps up throughout the year all the way to the, to, to the very end. And I think we're just kind of feeding off of that. And there's some real great rivalries and battles and things happening. Great right? stuff to talk we about. We didn't have this that's, the last couple of years, right? That's not Am a problem. I, is it no, just me? Or what? No, not like this. No. We've missed it. So, it's so nice. Uh, so one of the biggest things that came out of last week's show was the what the F does Kyle Petty have to do with this comment. Yeah. Uh, I did not see Kyle this weekend. He wasn't working this weekend. So un- uh, regrettably, I've yet to be able to try to explain the context of that situation because I'm sure he has no idea what the context is. He's just seeing people go, hey, man, that's funny what you said. What the hell does Kyle Petty have to do with this? And Kyle's probably going, why are you dragging my name into this? Right? He's probably a little insulted. It could be a little offensive if you yeah. don't have the context. Right. And, you know, kind of personally, I kind of hope it is offensive to well, him because you got it coming, dude. I'm going to try to do him a solid right here, right now what are you gonna do? on the show. So a lot of you guys don't know this, but Kyle Petty has a new book. There oh, it is. All right. Kyle Petty's new book is called Swerve or Die. I mean, that's a hell of a headline, isn't it? So, um, anyways, all of Kyle's friends, hoping that I'm still one of them, uh, have <laughs> been promoting this for him over uh, – on their social media handles. I just saw Rick Mass posting it earlier today. But all the guys that he's raced against has, have gotten a copy. I checked my mailbox this morning on my way to, to doing this podcast. This book was in the mailbox. Thank uh, you, Kyle, for even thinking about sending me a copy. 
Uh, you may be regretting that now after yeah. wondering what I'm saying and why I'm using your name in vain. But uh, <laughs> anyways, yeah. Kyle Petty has a new book, Swerve or Die. If you want to check it out, it's where books are sold. And um, I bet it's equally as entertaining as anything that Randy has in his book. Even though Kyle did not smuggle any drugs that we know of, I think that Kyle's stories, I have heard them. I have been hanging out with this guy for the last several years in the NBC world. And uh, when we're in, the, you know, when we're just hanging out between shows, the stories that he tells. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the guy just, he just did, he, he, he lived his life. I mean, back in the 80s, early 80s and stuff, when he was just kind of coming into the Cup Series, he just did what, he just did it however he wanted to do it. He didn't like. I don't know that he ventured off too far from that either. <laughs> I know. I don't, I'm just saying, like, he didn't have, from his point of view, I don't know, it's really, he's got an interesting approach to life. Very matter of fact, very carefree. Uh, now you get to explain to him the context behind why you work drug smuggling into his book pitch. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> if that's all that we have. <laughs> you know that this. Yeah, that, that'll be the video. Yeah, that's the video is very short <laughs> and brief. Yes, I'll probably have to explain that. I got a question. Do you, after last week's podcast and all that went into it and the videos and everything, did you have any regrets from anything that I said or you said or anything that came out of it? No. Um, you wanted me to admit something, though, so I will do that. I'll do that for you. This is not me admitting a fault or being incorrect. Man, it's hard for you to it's hard for you to wait in it. Oh man, I'm gonna see. This is gonna be fun for me. I'm gonna say things intentionally that are gonna be hard for him to keep his mouth shut. So um, we talked about the um, the Ross and Denny thing off turn two at Pocono, and you didn't know you weren't sure whether they made contact. Me and Matthew uh, felt really confident about that, and. In my mind, then we watched the we watched the replay right here in our studio as we're doing the show, and it was not as much beating and banging or not as hard of contact, and it wasn't as egregious, I guess, as I remember it in the moment. So when we're watching it back in replay, I was like, "Yeah, that, I could see why someone would watch that and go, well, that's not a big deal,' you know." And uh, so it was not as cut and dried or or obvious uh as i as i really remember it in the moment you know because i mean in the moment it's it's happening and it's wow it's what 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 did we just see you know wow we got ross in the wall then he went side by side there was contact i mean you know it, it was bigger in the moment and then when you watch it again a couple of days later you're like oh okay that's just something i've seen a hundred times uh but you know i did get a text from denny and he's like man you were right what yeah, I told you this, and you know this. You don't want me to bring that up. No, you? that's okay. not the part we right. said we were going to bring I up. Got you. Okay, <laughs> we won't bring that part up. But um, then he said you were right. And he texted me and said I was right. He's like, oh, man, cool. he's like that wasn't. He's like, you know, I don't want to. I'm not throwing Denny under the bus here, but he's like, I, that I, that was definitely not just hard racing. And I think Ross and one of the things that I didn't get to say was. In, in Ross's interview, I think Ross, and I, maybe we did go over this, but Ross was kind of like, man, I hope this is retaliation because I kind of got off easy here, right? I'm, I mean, could this be it? Could we just say that this is the this is the deal and it's over with? So anyhow, um, Ross, all right, so <laughs> this guy, every week, we go, to, we go to the road course at Indy and dude takes a shortcut or the long road and, I don't know, makes it a shortcut. What what would you? I know that everybody's got an opinion over what we saw at the end of the race with him, 
trying to uh, trying to make turn one, slows down with everybody else. He's on the brakes, and then right at the last second, he just gets off the brakes and says, "I'm just going to go forward and and through the through the Joker lane." Well, you saying he's on the brakes? He was on the brakes, Mike, slowing down for turn one, and then he let off the brakes and went into the the, uh, the access road. Slowed down like a fat kid at a salad bar. He that slowed down. He didn't <laughs> slow down. He went head first into that access road. I know that, but he sl- he was on the brakes. Do we want to replay of that? So Mike can see this because <laughs> <laughs> Matthew's like Jesus. Mike, do you not pay attention? Do so you not watch the race? <laughs> right. Like no offense, but like the last week, I thought you have valid points, but Lord, no, you guys, Lord have stop. mercy. Right, anyway, right, whoa, 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 stop. Okay, we're we're not going to sit here and debate whether none of us know too much if he was on the brakes or not. I'm telling you, I do. We I have, would love. There's to SMT. Know what, yeah, there's SMT okay, and there's information. Okay. how fast do you think he hit the access road? Uh, probably hundred. I don't know. I mean, it's fast. It was fast, right? So, like, when people hit the brakes, mm-hmm. I mean, hit the brakes to make the turn, they go, they got to slow down way more than that, right? He was slowing down to go into the corner, Mike. He wasn't. Yeah, so, that's what I'm saying. It, you got to slow down to make that corner. He had no intention to make that corner, though. Yeah, he did. Well, he didn't act like it. All right. This is what happened, Mike, okay? Can I just tell you what happened? Now, remember, you were wrong about – what you thought you saw. Y'all, going back to what you said, that that uh, contact last week at Pocono wasn't nearly what you thought it was. You you guys got insulting a little bit last week. and You said they didn't I was, even hit. I was, it, but I also conceded that part when I watched the replay, didn't I? Right. But, but you didn't. And so do we then, want to go through this whole no, process No, no, no. Again? Listen, listen, listen. I'm watching the race just like you guys are watching the race. And there's plenty of people watching the race that all have different opinions on it. Just respect everybody's opinion. Let's start there. And I'm telling you that I did not see a a valid attempt to make that corner. You know, usually when you see people miss their corner, they're going to bounce around a little bit and then go drive around. But you slowed down so much. This guy hit it fast. He did. So I think Ross mentioned in his post-race interview that he had went through there in practice, unintentionally missing turn one and, and he had to take that route in practice. So he was aware of it, right? And for him, I think for him to mention that in his post-race interview tells us all that it was possibly something he absolutely knew was an option before he got down to turn one, right? And so I think as I'm watching data and all the things that are available to me, when they get the green flag, For that final restart, Ross has every intention of going through turn one properly. We get down in the braking zone. He's still on that same plan. We get about 80% into that braking zone where he's really got to make that decision of I'm going this way or I'm not, and he chooses plan B. In that final few moments, uh, he realizes I'm on the far left side. I've got... Six cars to my inside and several rows deep. I mean, there's it's impossible. There's no way that he goes through this corner without having to go through the grass, get off track, get possibly spun around, whatever, right? I think he makes the absolute correct choice in going straight because it's not – It's a that, that corner ter- is a terribly designed corner, in my opinion. Yeah. All right? For, for us to have restarts and, and you're not going to tell – no one's going to be able to say – there's no way that you can stop these drivers from trying to get everything they can get, all right? And so 
it's it is there is some respect issues for sure, but there's all this asphalt and there's all these opportunities to try to get down in the corner. They're going to do everything they can do. Yeah. And so that, in my opinion, comes down to the track design, right? There being so much room, so much area that these guys, that, that it's, it's really an issue with how the track is designed in that area that's creating all these issues, problems, right, for restarts. And so you're trying to funnel you're such a wide racetrack where the guys can get to five and six wide down into a one to two, one or two wide area, and it isn't happening. It's not, it's not realistic to expect uh, that to be, you know, that to work every time. And so, anyhow, Ross, in my opinion, makes the best choice that he could possibly make. And so he goes straight and comes out racing for the lead. In the lead, right? <laughs> Racing side by side with with the uh, with the eight, with one of the most amazing displays of driving after he came out. Yeah. The, the make that pass was insane yeah. driving skill. And so he he gets docked thirty seconds. Uh, other guys went through there earlier in the day and didn't, didn't get docked no thirty seconds. I think a few few went through there. Day before uh, too. Yeah. Um, and time out on that. Did you know – you knew that. Like, you saw that – you as the broadcaster and been working all weekend, you guys had seen people oh, yeah. doing that all yeah. weekend, correct? Yeah. Okay. There were several times on restarts where just out of the corner of your eye, you'd see you'd, – on the far right side of the screen, you'd see something just slip, slip through, right? And we wouldn't – we didn't call it because we, are, we start focusing on the battle through turns two, three, and four, right? You can't start talking about stuff that's not on the screen, and you're not really sure which car it was anyways. But uh, so there were, and, and, like Matthew said, there were several instances throughout the weekend where guys used that access road. And I don't think that everyone or anyone else had received a penalty. I know that's one of those areas, that's one of those situations where NASCAR makes a judgment call. They made a choice, like, we have to do something here, or they felt compelled to do something. I'm not saying that NASCAR's decision was wrong. Um, I'm just surprised that, it, it it came to that. I'm surprised that the access was actually as quick or quicker than taking the the necessary racing line. Um, that to me um, is something that just should never happen. It shouldn't even be close, right? It shouldn't even be. You shouldn't ever. You shouldn't ever have a design in a racetrack where you're like, well, this could be better if they went through this area. And if we're not making them stop, right, to, to serve a penalty in turn 12, right, because uh, there was no rule if they went through this access in turn one. Now, if they missed the course and went into the grass, they had to stop in turn 12 to serve a penalty. But if they take this access road, they did not have to stop. That was the problem is that yep. it, the, the design being one thing. I mean, listen, I'm never going to knock the design of Indianapolis Motor Speedway, but I will say this. That there wasn't a clear, defined rule about taking that access road at that point. After all these people had been doing it all weekend, apparently, TJ said Austin Dillon did it all day on yeah. Saturday. So uh, th then there could have been some definity uh, or definition yeah. to that rule to where you're not having to make a judgment call in the last lap of the Cup race. Yeah, I, I, maybe that's as simple as that. Is they don't even need to redesign that part of the racetrack. Just say, hey man, you go through here to stop and go in turn twelve, just like every other part of the track. If you cut it, that fixes it. Exactly. Go. Now, when that mm -hmm. happened, so you had seen drivers do that all weekend. So now, put yourself back in the booth on the last lap. You guys are calling the race. When that happened, did you expect Ross to be penalized at that point? And then, 
NASCAR took a while before they even made a ruling on it. They ran most of that lap before they even made a call on it. Yeah. Were you guys confused up in the booth? No. I mean, what, what were y'all thinking? No. The feedback in social media land and, and, and other places is, why did it take so long for us to learn what was going on? Well, you know, that's how long it takes to make some of those decisions. And it wasn't that, it wasn't that NASCAR had that information and was withholding it, but it does have to come from NASCAR race control all the way to our booth. We have to va- validate that information and make sure it's correct and then... You know, we, we don't want to put out something that's wrong. NASCAR has to correct us. And so then then we get the information. We're not withholding it for 30 seconds or 45 seconds, waiting on an opportunity to slip it in there. Um, as soon as we get it and we feel good about it, uh, we put it out there. In those moments, I don't know why, but I can be patient. You know, if if a penalty's coming down and it's, you know, two laps to go, one lap to go, and there's a, there's an issue, you know, obvious situation with, what we like we saw with Ross, I I, I don't I, I can be patient for NASCAR to make a decision or decide what the decision is, and if that's even after the race, so, so be it. So you're calling, yeah. You guys have to call the race. That was the race for the win right there between those two. Yeah. And until further notice, until for a decision is made, you're calling the race for the win right there between Ross and Tyler Reddick. Yeah. No questions asked. I I I, I just I know that there was. Look, there was just skepticism on whether that was going to, in fact, be the race for the win. What do you, what do, you do if you're Tyler Reddick? Um, and I think they had this incident just last year, right, at Indy, when Christopher Bell. What do you do if you're Tyler Reddick? Well, if, didn't, didn't, didn't the leader get wrecked by somebody that was actually penalized and their card yes. was pulled? Briscoe and, Brisco and, and Danny Hamlin. Danny Brisco, Hamlin. Yeah, that, not, yeah, I said Christopher Bell, Briscoe. So, yeah, I don't know. If you're, yeah, if you're Tyler Reddick, you race. Well, you have to what. because Cindric was right behind them. That's right. Cindric was right behind them. So, I mean, That's Tyler's right. trying not to get past with Cindric, and he's probably not sure whether the one's legit or not. So, he's just he's got to do what he's got to do. And he did a great job. Um, you know, Ross didn't have the pace uh, that the eight car had. He even made a – you know, I love, I love the idea that Ross, even though he knows his car is not quite as good, was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw this up in there and I'm going to see if I can steal a win. I love that. You know, a lot of guys, myself included, you know, when you're when you race and you're like running all day long, just getting your butt kicked by a handful of other cars, you kind of start to feel like, man, you know, a top five would be pretty good today. And in it unconsciously, you you are settling, right? You're you, unconsciously you start a, you sort of you get off the offense and more on the defense gotcha. and try to protect this potential right top five result I might get right where Ross never is like that Ross is always like win 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 you know every lap right he's driving around there going more more faster faster pass 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 win 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 and uh Mike (laughs) access road access road go cut to the pits cut to the garage (laughs) yeah cut to the campground right you know and even when his car isn't the quickest car he's like man if I could just get the lead maybe I can you know um, a lot of people aren't built that way. It's fascinating. But, uh, you know, Reddick, I was surprised by Reddick's uh, having a curveball like that thrown at you, right? You come out of the corner thinking, man, I'm looking in the mirror and I've got a pretty nice little lead. Whoa, who's this guy? <laughs> what is this? Spotter so, information, please. Yeah. Now now this is a new twist, Yeah. Um, new challenge. And, uh, and he had to be smart through five and six. To, to let Ross have that. Ross was not going to lift there. And he's like, you know what, Ross? I'll, I'll concede this for a moment. And um, 
and then he battled back and got back by him. You know, really, really veteran mentality, being able to kind of buckle down and 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 stay smooth and stay composed. Right, that was a uh, that's a tough thing to do in some of those moments, especially when some big surprise like that happens. So there was a lot of cool things going on there at the end of that race, and I, I think that if you're if you're NASCAR, you definitely you definitely have to do something there at the end. You you hate that he even got to that position. You can't allow. <laughs> I mean, if Ross doesn't get past, you can't say that Ross is the winner. I mean, what's your opinion, Mike? If let's just no. say hypothetically, okay, if Ross does not get passed by the eight car, takes the checkered flag, hypothetically, you can't give Ross the win. I don't think you can. But I love hypothetically. I love the idea of having an option to go. Uh, around something else like can you imagine if that was just a normal thing on that road course if if drivers could actually take a different route and it may be longer but it also may avoid the wreck like you weigh the risks and rewards to it I mean that was kind of exciting I actually liked it uh but but because you know why I like that actually because that was a calamity corner I mean listen the restart right before that where Logano and William Byron felt like they were in top fuel dragsters, not even trying to make a turn and just bolted on in there and yeah. just knocked out everybody. Like none of that seemed fun if I'm a driver and I, uh, you know, so again, I don't even fault Ross for doing what he yeah. did. I mean like that, that was, uh, but no, I don't think, I don't think right, you can right. give him the win. Picture this, it's blazing hot outside and you need to head to work. You get into your car and turn on the AC to get the cold air pumping as soon as possible, but it doesn't work. Instead, blowing hot air out of your vents and directly into your face. No, your car doesn't hate you. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the air conditioning system, and there's an easy all-in-one solution that will restore your cold air in no time. There's no need to go to the shop and pay lots of money when you can save time and money recharging yourself with AC Pro Recharge Kits. AC Pro Recharge Kits make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience. And the AC Pro app offers clear, vehicle-specific instructions to help you get the job done in less than 10 minutes. So pick up an AC Pro Recharge Kit at any store selling auto products and confidently restore your car's cold air yourself today. Be a pro with AC Pro. So um, another thing that was kind of being talked about is going back to the Oval. After... After this was a conversation going on before the race, right? Now that we've seen the race, now that we've seen uh, what was going on at the road course and what the new next gen car looks like there, uh, where do you guys land on trying to either stay at the road course, which Roger Roger Penske says we're probably going to be on the road course next year, then maybe the oval, right? NASCAR wants to go to the oval next year. Uh, at least that was that was what I'd heard. So after the race, everything we saw, you want more of that, or you want to go to the oval, or you want to leave entirely? Oh, goodness. Everybody, everybody gets around here. Go, Alex. I think the Oval, because there's so many road courses on the schedule already. You don't really need another one, and the Oval's pretty prestigious. Yeah. So that alone, they should run that. Matthew? I think we go with the Oval, but only with the Cup Series, because the Brickyard should be reserved for the Brickyard uh, for the Indianapolis 500, and that is it. All right, so that's a difficult thing to do if you're going to have both series there on the weekend, having we'll to re- Run the Xfinity the- at IRP, just like they ran trucks at IRP. All right, so Boom. then... Okay, so send the Xfinity Series to IRP. Just like you did the Truck Series. It was gotcha. a wild success over there this weekend as far as uh, crowd, and, and the event was great. One of the things that I'd be love to know about that race is the number, uh, the TV number, because that's True. the one that matters. All right, so uh, when you're trying to sell sponsorship, 
to a uh, if you're going to sell a sponsorship to a single Xfinity race, and it's at at the Indianapolis Speedway. Yep. It's a little bit more uh, of a of an easy sell for yes for sponsors. But if that TV number was great from the Truck Series compared to other Truck Series races, then that's the that's that's the that's going to be the tough part. You're that's right. going to be the part that 100%. actually makes it makes it actually the viable situation to be able to move the uh, Xfinity Series there. I love the I love the track. Love I want to see short track racing. Preach, Mike. Listen, I love IRP as well. I'm always about racing at IRP. Um, I, before I say, listen, I don't have a problem with the Indy Road Course. I just also want to remind everybody the the complaining that was going on after the last Cup race at the Big Oval. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that was multiple years in the making, too. I mean, we didn't have a really good finish or a good race. And I just know how, you know, and I'm just speaking broadly about the NASCAR fan base, which I am part of. I would just say, I don't remember the last time Indy's Oval produced a really good cup race. Um, So take that for what it's worth. I will put my vote in for giving the uh, road course a little bit more uh, run for its money before you go back and change it up again. I think it would be great to – to go to the oval with the new next gen cards to see what kind of race we'd have. And also I think that drivers want uh the crown jewel back, want that opportunity to win at the oval. And um that's something that matters to uh to a driver's career. If you're a guy like Denny Hamlin who said when he lost he lost the uh the the Brickyard four hundred to Brad Keselowski, uh I think two thousand eighteen or nineteen had some contact last couple of laps. Denny loses the race. Uh, I think he gets crashed in turn three and four or something. I'm anyhow. He got out of the car and said, "This has been my greatest defeat. This is mm-hmm. this is as low as I've ever been. This losing this race is the is the toughest loss of my career." And now we've taken away that opportunity for him or anyone else really to try to win that race. That, that tells you how prestigious winning at the Oval is, right? Um, so I think that. Um, I'd, I'd be willing to give it a give it a try and see if uh, if the next gen car did a good job there on the oval and that's also fair. that's fair. The next gen car is the difference there. Yeah. You could you would definitely want to try that again if the next gen cars. It's such different racing, yeah. anyways. As much as I was humored by what I saw on Sunday, I don't know that I want to see that see that again. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean it was funny, but that it's it's going to be funny the first time. Then we go back next year and do that all over again, and it's not funny the second time, right? It's a little bit annoying, maybe frustrating to watch all those guys try to restart and funnel down into turn one and do that all over again. So, Well, it had some embarrassing facts last year, too. I mean, like these are twice, two years in a row. I mean, last year they had that turtle stop, whatever you want to call it, oh, yeah, that yeah, people yeah. were running over and tearing up their cars with. I mean, like they've had – they've not done a perfect race yet on the road course. Yeah, there's been some – some some drama there we could blame the track all we want i blame the drivers the lack of respect i had a conversation about this yesterday where we don't have the policing force in our garage area anymore like we had with your dad or even rusty um you know where when somebody does something that's against driver code somebody pulls them aside or tony stewart grabs their neck a little bit and pulls them aside you can't do that and what I saw on some of those restarts, especially at the end, was kind of disgusting. You know, even people that I love and know and great, but they were racing with complete lack of respect for the guy next to them. Yeah. And it was, in my opinion, it was terrible. Well, I, I could, I feel like that 
you know, what I saw at IRP in the truck race definitely was disrespectful. Yes. And unwarranted and, and silly. Uh, but um, the things that were happening in the cup race, it wasn't, you know, like, let's just say Joey Logano, right? He dives down the inside six wide. Six wide. You know, you know, Joey knows that what he's doing is a low, is a high risk, low percentage shot, right? You know, it's like, this probably ain't going to work. But what else does, what other option does he got other than to not try? He isn't going down in a turn going, I'm going to hit this car in front of me. I'm going to turn this guy. I'm going to, I'm going to bulldoze and, and bowl through here. He's not really thinking that. He's just going He's going where everybody else ain't. And that's the track design, in my opinion. If there was grass, they wouldn't be going down there. If it was, you know, if it wasn't like eight lanes of asphalt headed down into a 90-degree a, a turn that funnels into two lanes of asphalt, I mean, they, this, it's a, in my opinion, this is what you get when you try to take an oval and turn it into a road course. And um, I, you know, I know it's Indy. I just, I'm not a huge, huge fan of some of the things about that that layout for the Cup car, right? Uh, we've got better brakes. Everything about this car, uh, as far as the brakes and everything, allowing these guys to get so much further down into the braking zone. Uh, all these things sort of came together to, 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 to create what we saw on Sunday. I don't know what you do, but I think it'll just keep happening. We go back there next year, you're going to see the same thing. You can talk – I mean, you will we'll, – you know, drivers can talk about respect. Everybody can complain about the disrespect and all the things. But, man, we are going to go back and nothing's going to change. Because there's no accountability like there used to be. I don't – I disagree with that. In the garage. You don't you, you There's don't plenty agree with of that? accountability. There's plenty. How? Who's holding those young drivers accountable anymore that make those decisions? I, well, I mean – there's a long list of drivers that are like Kevin Harvick. Don't ask him for an example, Matthew. Don't ask for an example. No. Um, I think that there is <laughs> accountability in the garage, and I think that there's accountability in the sport, and I feel like that that isn't enough. Even if even if Dale Earnhardt were driving out there on the racetrack, that would not be enough to stop what we saw happening again. I think it's uh, – I think that the only way to kind of – you don't see this – I don't think we'll see this type of stuff getting down into turn one at Watkins Glen, you know. We didn't Got a see, good point. Yeah, we didn't see it. We didn't see this type of stuff, turn 11 at Sonoma, which is a parking lot. I think it's the – you know, the, you got eight lanes of asphalt on a restart heading into heading into a tiny little, ton, you know, funnel. It's what it is. It is what it is. It's a design issue. Well, uh, I can respect that. I have different You're not wrong about but, that. No. You've got that wide of lanes, that many lanes, and then you've got a we, basically a 90-degree turn at the end of it. But I, to Matthew's point, I, I agree with you. The driver knows that angle they got to take to be able to make that turn. Absolutely. And if you don't, you, you, so what options does Joey Logano have? Well, he could not try to make that angle, which was impossible, without hitting five cars. He could have done that. He's a smart driver. He's one of the best in the world. He needs to know that. Um, it's almost like, yes, you've got all this asphalt. It's a trap. Don't do it because you cannot make that turn. That, is that a design flaw or is that just the driver's not thinking about 
what it takes to make that turn. I think that's probably what it is. But yeah, there is a lot of asphalt to play with for sure. It's it's a it's a it's a tough thing, but I think that um, yeah, maybe we need to go run the road course again. See if we can get this better. See if we can do a better job. Right. Hey, I, I had a question, and you may not even have an opinion about it, but I was dying to ask you, and I saved it for the show. What did you think of Ross's interview with Dave Burns afterwards? Where Ross is a bit annoyed? Yeah. Go ahead. It seemed a little out there, Give didn't some it? some context. Well, so Dave Burns asked what I thought was an obvious question. Did you plan on hitting that access road? And it almost seemed like Ross was a bit bewildered by the, by the question, and he said, no, Dave. I didn't plan it, and, and he seemed a bit annoyed, and I, did, I don't know. I thought that the most awkward interview was definitely going to be Richard Childress after Tyler Reddick won, but it wasn't. It was Ross, uh, you know, talking about the access road. I didn't know if you had, if you even noticed or if you had an opinion. I did notice it, and I didn't really have an opinion about it because I think in the moment the guy's just sitting there learning that he got disqualified, and True. he's not going – you know, he's, good, he's, he's sitting there uh, with a top – I don't know, top five finish. What he, what he crossed the line, second or third? Yeah, second. So, I mean, you just get out of the car and you're like, damn, I thought I was second. Yeah. And now I'm, what, 30th, 25th, whatever, that, that 32nd put him back outside yeah. the top 20. So, I think that um, you're stewing over that a bit. Yeah. yeah and he fair. could have been asked any question and gave uh, – he could have been asked, hey, man, what, how, how, how about this weather? And he'd have gave a freaking annoyed response. Yeah. Uh, because I think that he's just getting out and trying to come to terms with what all just went down. Denny said something interesting on Door Bumper Clear this week. Denny Hamlin was a guest on that podcast, and he said that he's heard that about Ross, where Ross gets so laser-focused in on something that he almost develops this tunnel vision to where he's completely oblivious to anything else going around him. And so if he was in that, in that zone, in that lane, whatever it is yeah. in his mind – that the questions, you're right, no matter what they would have asked, he was now sort of snapping out of it into reality again. Yeah. Um, I, didn't know, I didn't know that about Ross, but that's interesting if that's in fact true. Yeah. So, uh, you know, just really compelling. How, how do you think uh, what other cool things came out of the Denny podcast on Door Bumper Clear? I'm pretty excited to listen to that one. Reaction Theater has a song about Denny with the Denny in there that right there should win a podcast award. Mm. I mean, it was <laughs> so funny. The guy's totally making a dig at Denny. First of all, whoever wrote it did so Sunday night after he learned that Denny was going to be a guest on the show. It's fantastic writing. And then it's also really good execution and performance. Damn. But there's a, there's a song on Reaction Theater. I think it's the last song, uh, The Last yeah. Call. Yeah. It is so funny. Uh, what else? Denny was good. A lot of insight on the um, – he gave his opinion about the Kyle Busch salary negotiations. Yeah. Yeah, that's oh, an interesting God. perspective I if bet. you're Denny, right? Yeah. It's his teammate. The Reddick stuff. And also, but, but Denny also being an owner can certainly understand Joe Gibbs' perspective in this you know, negotiation. It's very fascinating. Uh, what did you say, the Tyler Reddick? The Reddick stuff I thought was oh, yeah. neat that they went there. And like Denny doesn't hold any, you know, he'll, he'll talk about anything. He will. Uh, he talked about the Tyler Reddick announcement and, you know, the you know, unfortunate circumstances for Richard. He brought up a good point. I shouldn't give this all away, but he brought up a good point why it's actually best for RCR <laughs> to get this news out there now because now they can at least go sell knowing who their driver will be in 2024 or that it won't be Tyler so they can go make their plans better. Not that it made it any better or makes it feel better for RCR. I just thought Denny had a lot of good, very open, honest, compelling, as you would expect, you know, feedback and I, you know he gave it man um denny's always such a great guest trying to convince him to to host a 
co-host or co-hosts are actually coming here and uh, host the Dale Junior Download. Get yeah. him to have somebody come in here who he wants to interview, and and I think that'd be pretty fun. Him just having a conversation with somebody that he's wanting to have a conversation. And me and I text Denny, and we were talking about that, and and we were thinking maybe Ross would be his guest. How about that, I mean. Again, just, I wonder just shut would, the door and just, just listen. <laughs> I wonder if just Ross shut would up be and listen, right? I mean, with that. God, <laughs> man, that'd be awesome. What do you mean? That'd be amazing. I don't think Ross would do it. Well, I think in this room they could sit down and literally probably have a great conversation. Probably. Yeah, and come out come out of here with, with a good understanding. But I tweeted this, and I, don't, I, I stand by it. I don't want them to become friendly. I don't want no. them to get past it. Like, I Even, want them to emerge and stay rivals. You can be... Let me take it back. You can be friendly, but I don't want you to be friends. Yeah. So if they come in here and end up being best buds, I don't want it. We didn't do the sport of justice. We need we this were, rivalry yeah. bad. We what need if they it. teamed up and and started rivaling rivalry rivalries with other drivers? What if we? What if they were like uh, the Rock and Roll Express <laughs> uh, tag team? <laughs> I can't think of two other candidates that would be able to make rivalries with other drivers than those yeah. two right there. Yes. They could definitely do it. But yeah. <laughs> Rock and Roll Express. <laughs> Name the top three tag teams of all time. Of all time. All right. Rock top and Roll three. Express, right? That's, uh, that's no, number no, one? No, 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 no. That's not number no. one. Uh, would, would you call like a oh, – I mean, the horsemen, you know, that's yeah, four people four, with Tully and, yeah. and uh, Arn and – my, my number one is um, Magnum TA and Dusty Rhodes. Okay. That was a short run, but yeah, uh, man, I, those the, that for me that was pretty cool. Did they have a name? For no. The, oh, I think you gotta have a name, don't you? Nope. No. No. Okay. Not when All you're right, as fair. cool as All them. Right. All right. uh, the Road Warriors. The Road Warriors. Okay. For yeah. sure. I like that. Um, Rock and Roll Express. Rock and Roll Express got to be third then. Does the uh, wait a minute? So was Rock and Roll Express better than Midnight Express? Yes, but it's close. Yeah. Yes, Rock and Roll Express beats Midnight Express, but they were both very good at their. Prom. I give them, yeah. all right number three, Rock and Roll Express. <laughs> Can you name one of the Rock and Roll Express? Oh, she, Ricky Morton. Ricky, uh, okay. Is that one? Is it? What? What look was it? it up. What was when? Uh, look it up real quick. Yeah. Look, look at. Uh, I think Ricky Morton was one. Wasn't uh, Steamboat in a Steamboat tag? Was a Steamboat? He was in a tag team with. Um, uh, Damn it! I gotta click Superfly marker. Superfly Snooker. <laughs> I don't remember. All these old wrestlers yeah. are bringing me back, man. <laughs> We're going like all, I'm going. This is like I was eight, eight, five years old. Like, remember Polish Power Ivan Putski? No. Oh. Sh- at least we know what we're going to get crucified on social media this week about. I mean, it'll be about this because we got this wrong. What you got? It was Robert Gibson and Ricky Morton. Yay! Ricky Morton, yes. Ricky Morton. I was right. You got it right. right. Yeah. 50. <laughs> you were right about that. Doesn't a 50 pass the test? Yeah, that'll work. These days it does. Used to be a 70. <laughs> now we've lowered it. It's like really – lower it to whatever passes everyone. So Flair was, had his last match. Yeah. Did you see? Yeah. Till his next match. Ah, I think he's done. Really? Yeah, I saw. Uh, it was pretty rough. A buddy of mine sent me some video and images of it, and I was like, "Holy smokes!" You're right. Yeah. Anyhow, well, good, good for him. We've got some news to announce, and oh. it, it isn't tag teams. I know. I run, we're running a little bit long on the dirty air. Yeah. Presented by filter Just time. Just a little. Actually, this news has already been announced. Uh, it yeah. came out this morning. Uh, but it, what has? It came it, out this morning. Yeah. By the time the podcast comes out. But it had now. It, oh man, I'm confused. Okay. Oh, actually, it would have come out five minutes ago. Woo! Yeah, it would have come out five minutes ago by Jeff Gluck of the Athletic. He broke the news, and then uh, you know there'll be a press release here coming from the Junior Motorsports 
uh, here in a few minutes. But as you guys listen to this podcast, there is news out. Man. And it is Dale Earnhardt Jr. is back behind the wheel of what number? It's number three. Get the number three, that. yeah, it's going to be number three. And uh, basically, so in 1993, I raced at uh, North Wilsboro Speedway in the number three Sundrop uh, Chevy Lumina. And we have partnered back up with Sundrop again uh, to basically recreate this race car. Uh, when we go race at uh, August 31st for the Cars Tour <clears throat> at North Wilsboro, we'll be driving a car that um, is a throwback to 1993 when I raced there. Uh, all green race car with a white number three on it. I said back in, uh, I guess, uh, whenever 2010 or whatever, when I ran that Wrangler car, that was the last. That was enough. That was the last time I'd ever drive number three. But you were wrong about uh, that. You never say never. I guess lesson learned. We are back behind the wheel, um, and we are excited about that. Um, I just can't wait. I'm going to the race tonight. So while you're listening to this, if you're listening to this on Tuesday night, we are at the track right now watching the mods run. And uh, and then there's racing the rest of the month in August. And then uh, the Cars Tour races there on the 30th and 31st. Qualifying on the 30th, racing on the 31st, 125 laps. Uh, limited late models as well. Uh, there'll be a lot, of, uh, a lot of fun to be had. And I'm going to hopefully go out there and run all the laps in my little green Sundrop car. Ah. Oh. It's so cool, man. Yeah. That car is so good looking. Now, a couple other little points here. One is there is going to be merch. A lot of people ask when we come out with a special paint scheme or a car, certainly with the number three, there is going to be merch. So you can go to jrmracing.com for that or just stay in touch with the social media feeds. Also, Dirty Mo Media going to produce a six-part docuseries that's going to be for our YouTube channel called Roots in Revival. Dale Jr. is going to be hosting that. And so, yeah, can't wait. Six so like parts. Six parts with some bonus episodes, I might say. But Whoa. yeah, we're gonna have uh, we're gonna do it right. Dirty Mo Media. This is what we this is what we're built for. Uh, and so we'll be going to the mod race tonight as well. So check that out. That's gonna premiere the first episode, the first installment of Roots and Revival will be next Tuesday, August 9th on Dirty Mo Media's YouTube channel. So uh, and then the last thing I have here, just look, buy tickets still, right? We're gonna always we're gonna evangelize that all month. You can buy tickets at NorthWilkesboroSpeedway.com. Also, if you're not in the area and you're not going to buy tickets, you can buy a pay-per-view and watch all of this racing on RacingAmerica.com because Racing America is part of it. It's actually RacingAmerica.tv, Mike. Is that right? Yes, sir. It's well, right there in front of you. I know that RacingAmerica.com, if you go there, it <laughs> has the button. It has that stuff it does that have says the buy pay, pay-per-view. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Right. So, you guys are but, hitting it on both sides. I like it. Yeah. There yeah. you go. You can also go to Racer or RaceXR.plus race xr dot plus but anyhow yeah actually uh, you know if you want to watch it on the stream that's fine uh if you want to come out and get a ticket tickets are 15 bucks i mean it's really really reasonable uh to be able to come out there and watch the event uh ticket but t- 15 bucks each day racing starts approximately at 7 30 uh we're i'm gonna probably head out there get there around five or so 5 30 6 o'clock and, and uh, get settled in uh and make sure uh if you if you love sundrop let them know and uh, go to the store, pick up another six-pack. If you've never tried Sundrop, if it's possible that you're out there and you've never tried it, all right, it is a uh, citrus-flavored soda. This stuff was made uh, in North Carolina, kind of originated around North Carolina. It's, you know, my dad used to have a Sundrop deal, did commercials for them, stand, cardboard stand-ups. My mamaw, Martha, made Sundrop cake. 
Oh, yeah. uh, it's been in our, you know, it's been in my grandparents' house forever. Dad's, you know, grew up around it. And I grew up with it around, you know, when when you used to, we used to hang out with Dad at the farm shop and DEI. The refrigerator had sun drop in it as long as I was alive. I was alive. I mean, it's just been a part of our family. Um, we've had partnerships with other other products in the past, but this has kind of always kind of been at our core. Uh, and you're just glad to have an opportunity to partner back up with them. Hopefully, uh, they get you know they get a lot out of this and enjoy this little this little partnership, and uh, maybe it develops into something more uh, on the on the regional grassroots level with our late mile stock program. But uh, just thrilled to be able to put this car back on the racetrack. In 1993, I qualified for the race. I got in a little accident on the back straightaway. Ended up having to finish the rest of the race a little damaged. Uh, bent bent the front suspension. Toe was messed up. Car didn't run very well after that. But uh, hopefully we have a better experience this time. And uh, yesterday they had cars on the racetrack practicing. I was watching the stream most of the day, uh, checking all that out. So uh, can't wait to get there today and see see all the fans that come out to the first race. The mod's running tonight at 50, 50 laps. Tomorrow, Wednesday. There's also one other piece of information that's coming out today. Who's your crew chief? Oh, yeah, Josh Berry. So Josh is going to <laughs> oversee the whole operation. I asked Josh to race. And uh, we got another car that he could have ran. But he was like, nope, I want to help you. It's going to be more fun to go and help you. So he's insisted to, to, uh, to not drive and to help me out, which I'm thrilled about because I'm going to need to, you know, lean on him about, you know, my pace and, and saving tires and how to run the race and the choices that we make and all that. So, I'll, you know, leaning on him on how to drive the car and what I'm feeling and so forth. These guys, uh, we're going to do some other things, too, uh, that I just kind of want to touch on real quickly. Each day on the 30th and 31st, we've got a Q&A. They're sold out, uh, 75 to 150 people. We're going to have drivers uh, that are going to be competing in the race come and sit with us. We're going to learn who these guys are, talk about their uh, where they race and, and what it means to them to be at North Wilsboro Speedway competing. That's going to be so fun for me to be able to highlight some of these guys and um, – I've implored Mike to uh, take this six-part series and try to do the best job he can to shine a light on the Cars Tour and the drivers and the people competing. Uh, this is just a great opportunity for them. and want to make the most of that. So uh, that'll be in some of the content that we produce as well as, our, as far as our podcasts and, and, and other things that will be uh, happening right around the race. Uh, you'll be hearing about some of these drivers we're going to be competing against and uh, learning some of these names. So. Should be a good time, and I uh, hope everybody enjoys it. We're thrilled to be a part of it, and this is just uh, a continuation of, of uh, trying to put together something fun and cool for this, uh, this experience at North Wilsboro Speedway. What's up, Dirty Mo Media fans? This is IndyCar driver Connor Daly. And comedian Joey Molinero. And we're Speed Street, Dirty Mo Media's newest podcast. We dive into the latest happenings in IndyCar, NASCAR, and F1 every week, as well as life on and off the track. Speed Street is available now on all major podcasting platforms. And make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Speed Street Pod. All right, everybody, super excited to uh, be able to uh, bring in this next guest, Randy Lanier, 1984 IMSA champion, and uh, just got an incredible story, very fascinating. We're uh, thrilled to be able to bring him in here because of our partner, Ally. Ally has been helping us uh, bring in some pretty awesome guests every single week, 
They're a great supporter of our show, and uh, they do a lot in the sport. So we're, we're thrilled to have Ally as an ally. They're a great ally of ours. So uh, uh, fortunate for, for that partnership to be able to have uh, the opportunity to, to, to do this show. I'm not sure we've had a guest this year that was more anticipated by you, yourself, Dale Jr. So I'm looking forward to it myself. I didn't know a lot about him, but wow, in the research, this guy's got a story. Can't wait to hear it. That's right. So let's welcome Randy Lanier to the Dale Jr. Download. So it's awesome to have you here, man. So, well, thank you. Yeah. So I've uh, I've listened to some of the podcasts you've done and and watched the Netflix show and and just kind of want to know right off the bat, like Randy, uh, there's been a lot of documentation on your life in the last several years, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. That would have you know how did how 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 did you come about to the decision of okay, I'm ready to tell this story because you know you got you could have just said you know I'm gonna I'm I got my life back I'm gonna I'm going to just do my thing, and, and I don't want to tell that story, right? But you did, and you were pretty transparent uh, about that. So how, how did you come about to make that decision? And also, uh, how, have you, uh, how have you felt about the feedback? I'm sure it's been pretty interesting, uh, some of the stories that you get told. And- the thing about being transparent about my story is through the years, all the trials and tribulations and the struggles and the hardships that I went through in, in the joint, I come to understand one of my purposes, and that's to help others. We're all here for purposes, and our purposes change throughout our journey. One of the purposes that kind of sticks with us on this journey is being of service to others. So you see, I got a T-shirt on. This is a nonprofit organization. And if you're a cannabis prisoner and you're nonviolent, we support you. Uh, that's what I was, a nonviolent, first-time offender, cannabis prisoner. And I got sentenced to the remaining balance of my natural life. I got a life sentence for a cannabis case. There's 38 states right now that's legal in some form or fashion. And all the doctors and all the scientists and medical experts have proven many, many ways how this plant can be a healing plant. So... With the people that are incarcerated, you not only incarcerate the individual, but you incarcerate the family. 
because now you separated the, the person of the family from their family. So we try to support the families that are going through this struggle and this hardship. We do that like in a multitude of ways. It's called freedomgrow.org. It's a nonprofit 501c3. That's, we're all volunteers. None of us take a salary. Wow. All right? I do it. We do it on our own time. I go to events. I get letters signed uh, asking Joe Biden to release the nonviolent cannabis prisoners so they can be home with their families. We also have programs like uh, a gifting program. It's called the WISH program. If you're a nonviolent cannabis prisoner and you're part of Freedom Grow, you let us know who you are. and We, we um, look at your background, make sure you're nonviolent. If it's your birthday, your mother's birthday, your grandmother's birthday, your children's birthday, I don't, if it's a family's member's birthday, you tell us what you want and we make it happen. It's called the WISH program. Yeah. So we do things for holidays. Like, for example, we had 178 cannabis nonviolent prisoners. They had 126 children. So we made up Easter baskets mm. of the, for the 126 children and put little water bottles that said, you are strong, you are brave, and you are smart. And we put little Rubik's Cubes, activity books, uh, Easter bunnies and candies with the $25 Walmart gift card. And for Christmas, I had 205 prisoners at the time, so we sent 205 Christmas cards with a $100 uh, Walmart uh, gift card. Yeah. So why am I being transparent? Because I want to help others. I want to be of service to others that's going through the hardships and the struggles that I went through. And, and I, I got to tell you, it's unnecessary hardships and struggles because no one should be locked up for this plant. Mm. Do you know how many prisoners there are of nonviolent cannabis prisoners in, in our country right now? Yes. I, there's a figure between thirty to 40,000 in okay. the county jails and all the state prisons and the federal prisons. So it's quite a few. It's, it's way too many. Yeah. And things are starting to change a little bit. Uh, our president said he's going to do something about it on his platform, but that hasn't come about yet. Mm -hmm. So I'm out there. We're trying to freedomgrow.org is out there trying to spread the message. And uh, it's, it's a good message. What are you doing with the rest of your time these days? Man, I've been writing a book. I uh, finished the book, and um, awesome to hear to promote yeah, so the this book comes day. out today. The book comes Hey, I, I'm on Dale Earnhardt's show, yeah. and the book comes out today. Yep, Survival of the Fastest. Survival of the Fastest. I'm, like, really proud of it. I'm a first-time published author. And it's about tales of, of marijuana smuggling, racing, and prison. Yeah. And uh, I can't wait to read it. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, why, everything else that I've seen is just so fascinating. I, I, I wouldn't even know how to, the, how to compare you, but we had Gary Blue on the show a long, long time ago. Yeah. Gary was a racer, also had, had, some, you know, had a business in smuggling. And uh, <laughs> so his name may come up multiple times during this conversation because that, you know, that's the only other thing I can compare this to, but... Uh, he is in his show. His story is fascinating as well. The interesting thing for him, though, is that when he got out of jail, he went back to smuggling. <laughs> and so I was thinking I couldn't really understand that. And when I asked him about it, I was like, man, what weren't you pretty sure you were going to get busted the second time? Why would you go back and do all that over again? You know, they're watching. You know that they are, yeah. you know, they your names in the database like you ain't going to be able to get away with <laughs> yeah. this. And uh, he's like, I just had to do it. I was just the, the rush. He almost said that the thrill, uh, adrenaline that he got from smuggling and running 
from the Bahamas and back and forth up to the coast was as much as, as exciting as driving the race car. Yeah. And that he, he almost missed that thrill, right, of trying to outsmart the, the government and the police. Well, my viewpoint from my perspective is we all have priorities, different priorities in our life. We have the outer priority, the excitement, the adventures that creates all the adrenaline. And we have the inner priority, our family, things that we need to take care of with our own self, getting to know who we really are. And my 27 years in the joint, seven of them was in solitary confinement. Oh, why? So, well, I would get caught up in investigations of escape. So um, through those seven years, my longest stint in the hole was, that's what we call it, the hole, um, was two years. Yeah. So those two years in solitary confinement gave me a lot of time to contemplate and really think about and meditate, did a lot of meditation on myself. And I've come to understand that if you're chasing stuff in your life, there's no need. Because we all have everything we need right here within us, for real. And so when you start looking at your priorities, your and sometimes we can get caught up on that outside priority and the excitement, the adrenaline, the rush. But now we have an inner priority. If we get caught up too much on the outer priority, we get out of balance. And we can get on a mindset that's all about what we're doing outside. Yeah. But we have something that's more important. And that's our inner priority of really get, getting in tune with who we really are and what our inner priorities are with our family and yeah. things like that. So and that helps even out the kill. So you are, you don't have to chase out for happiness. Happiness is right here, and it's, I'm not trying to say a cliche, yeah. but everything we need is right in here. And when you start living with your intentions from the heart, an abundance of things, the right people at the right time, the right opportunities, it comes about because you, you attract it. Ah, yeah. My wife believes in the law of attraction. And, uh, you know, thinking and imagining things and sure. bringing those things into your world, you know. Um, <clears throat> and, and I think that I probably didn't. I was the opposite. Yeah. Like, you know, I when I would race, I didn't wish for a certain result because I felt like that I was going to 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 uh, to set myself up for failure. Right. And so. Uh, but anyhow, um, she's kind of changed the way I think I look at things in that regard. But um, let's go ahead and start, man. You 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 grew up in Virginia. I'm a country boy. How did y'all end up moving from Virginia to Florida? Well, back in the 60s, um, my dad was kind of drinking kind of heavy, and we had a relative here in, in South Florida. And every summer, we usually go down for the vacation to stay with my aunt's house. And he got our hair up his butt, I guess, to go to Florida, and he sold, auctioned the house out and sold the house on an auction. Got all of about $6,000 for the home. <laughs> and uh, we moved to Florida. Who's we? How big's the family? Our family, five of us. Five uh, of them. Yeah, yeah, I have uh, three brothers and one sister, my mom and my dad. Mm -hmm. And so you go to Florida, and um, what, what was your life like there? Moving down to Florida as a teenager, coming from my grandmother and my grandfather grew tobacco. So I'm, I'm used to poking at the hogs and, and chopping wood and running through the, through the tobacco fields. Mm -hmm. And so coming to Florida and seeing the beaches and 
all the girls in bikinis and all the lifestyle was uh, kind of exhilarating and exciting. Mm-hmm. And it, I liked the change. It yeah. was it was nice. When did you smoke your first joint? I was 14 years old. Yeah. Was And so when you got to Florida, you were introduced to, to marijuana. When I got to Florida, I was introduced to marijuana uh, at a young age. And I don't recommend that for any family, by the way. That's just what I started down sure. the road at a young age. And... Um, that started early. Yeah, and you were, and so you started selling, dealing in school and stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. Started, uh, started dealing to my construction. I got a job at a um, construction site, digging footers. Okay, right for the mm-hmm. out in the hot sun, young kid. I had long hair, and construction workers started hitting me up. I think they <laughs> think they noticed the long hair, the ponytail, yeah. kept it in a ponytail, and I figured, okay, I can sell them and make a little bit and smoke for free. <laughs> really? Describe the scene back then. I mean, was this pretty this, you know, pretty common to is is marijuana pretty common? What was the like what was the scene back then? I guess this was what, the 70s? That's that's the late 60s. Late 60s. Yeah, late 60s, early 70s. Okay. Yeah. So it was pretty loose back then, I imagine. It was uh we would go to parks on the weekends mm-hmm. like on saturday and sunday and there would be bands playing we'd call it like a love then like uh, people smoking weed everywhere and eating lsd and um uh, that's just was the times yeah. in the late 60s it, you know it was uh open when did you meet your wife pam i met her i was uh, 16 years old 15 no, 17 years old mm-hmm. yeah Met her a long time ago yeah, at a at a uh, at a concert, Grand Funk Railroad. I don't know if you know who that is. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah at a Grand Funk Railroad concert. And so, what did you think when you saw her? Like, oh, I liked. You knew her. it in my yeah, yeah yeah yeah. You know, wanted to wanted to hang out with her. Yeah. And so, what was she doing? We're still hanging out too, yeah. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> what was she doing? She was right in front of me dancing. So you know, and I had a pocket full of joints so, <laughs> so you know i'm passing joints out at the concert so yeah. hey, how, how quickly were you going just from smoking joints to actually dealing like what was that time frame it like? took it took me a l- i didn't do it right away okay i was a smoker first maybe le- less than a year well yeah it's pretty yeah. quick though right a, yeah. a year i mean um and so w- did you give up the construction job well eventually i did i i get uh ended up getting I worked for construction for a while, but then uh, at a young age, uh, I had gotten ripped off for uh, in a drug in a, in a selling marijuana, and I got clipped for thirty five pounds, and I I moved to Colorado. I didn't move. I went on vacation. What? Wait, what, oh, what, what happened? That. What yeah. Happened? <laughs> well, I was I think I was seven, I was seventeen at the time, and yeah. I was selling thirty five pounds of weed, and it was a rip off. What do you mean? The the guy pulled a piece on me, a gun. And took my weed. <laughs> oh, really? so he just just is like, that the is that you. what happened in the house? That's what happened at when, my, my house. Yeah, Pam and you both were there. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. So what? So these guys come in, and you knew right away when they, you answered the door that something wasn't right. Right. Yeah. You didn't know the guy, right? I did. I knew one of them. I didn't know the other one. Ah. And so this was like, all right, and my man, gut told me, don't do this. <laughs> but you were, it was, you know, the money and the, the money worth, and, worth and, it. And, and trusting. Yeah. I'm a trusting mm. guy. Uh, you know, I want to believe what someone tells me. And I still, to this day, I, I, I want to believe what someone's telling so me. So this guy walked in with his friend, 
put a gun to y'all's head, taped y'all up. Yep. Took 35 pounds of marijuana out of the house. Yep. And ransacked the place. Yep. And then when they walked out and it got quiet and you realized they were gone, um, Pam's Pam's shook up. She's more than shook up. She's devastated that this is what I'm doing. She yeah. didn't really. I had been keeping it from her. Really? Yeah. Even though, I mean, she kind of had to know she you were dealing had, a little she bit. She had a, are you sure? Because I always had weed and I always had money. But now that was a big, she saw a lot now, of weed that day. 35 pounds sounds like a lot. Yeah. Is that well? well it, I, I know in, in context of what you're going to is probably not. Back but then, it was a lot. Thirty-five pounds. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Damn. What did that do to you? After you know, like after you so got you, clipped, well, you know what they, happens then? The, I had to call the guy up that I got it from and tell what, him that hey, I lost your weed. What do you say? <laughs> Come and, <laughs> and talk to me, and he t- he was good about it. He's, really? Yeah. He said, "Look, part of the deal. You know, things go wrong." Did he check it out? To make sure that you were telling the truth? Well, I think he knew. Yeah. He knew. Of course, he came to my house. And, saw the... and he knew. But when I explained who it was, he knew who they were. Uh, he knew one gotcha. of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He knew the guy that had the gun. Okay. And he said, look, just pack up everything and leave. He told you to pack everything up and leave? <clears throat> yeah, I had a rental house. Why? It was a house that I had leased. Where did he, why did he want you to leave? Well, I don't know. Maybe he was going to go... Do something to these guys. I don't just wanted you to be out of town when it happened. Yeah. Or whatever, right? You just said, go I, yeah. cool off. I just go. Yeah. So I went to Colorado. You but went to Colorado. I went to Colorado. <laughs> Why Colorado? Well, I was going to California. I just didn't make it. <laughs> <laughs> you were going there for what? You didn't know how long? I you didn't were just kind of going. I had a VW bug. Who was you know, with you? <laughs> they don't get did to California. Did Pam go with you? Pam, I went by myself. Why did you leave Pam? Because she's, she's a... Mad at you? She's younger than I am. She's like 16. Okay. She's right? got to stay home. She's, no, let me see how old she She was about, I think she was 17. I yeah. was 18, maybe. But she so, still had life to finish. She, she was in school. Yeah. She was in high school. Damn, is she mad? Right. She's sad? What's, yeah, what's she's, her emotions? She's mad, and I take off, and I leave. I, I, it's the funniest thing, because I got this little VW, red VW bug, yeah. and it's got an air conditioning unit yeah that's underneath the dashboard i take it apart and i put weed all up in it <laughs> <laughs> that's i want to yeah. have have my have my burn so i drive off i ended up picking up a hitchhiker somewhere down the road and he's going to aspen colorado i've never heard of aspen mm-hmm. i said all right i'll take you <laughs> so i take him to aspen he got a, a a golden retriever with him in the back seat of the bw bug so we go to aspen and i really like aspen and it ended up being a really good thing because there I met a guru. Uh, a, a guru is a guy that's from India yeah. that uh, has an ashram in Boulder, Colorado. And these people are all, I'm a vegetarian at the time too, by the way. Okay. All right. So it's kind of in line with some of my thinking. So I started kind of listening to this guru and his Mahatmas. <laughs> and I go to Boulder and I start staying at the ashram, what? and now I'm like passing out, <laughs> passing out Sunday uh, dinners at the ashram and meditating, and uh, I'm kind of liking it because I'm, I'm at peace, you know. Yeah. So, but it ended up being a good thing because when I get pinched on the smuggling case, you knew how to meditate. I go to prison, yeah. and it's like, you know what? I'm okay, man. I'm I'm good. It took me a long time to get to a certain point of forgiveness mm-hmm. for all my witnesses. I yeah. had 
A yeah, lot we'll of, get there. Yeah. yeah. So, but it ended up being, and this is, I, I swear, things happen for reasons. And I like to say things happen for good reasons. We don't know the understanding at the time when something like a, a tragic thing happens and you think, what the hell did that happen for? There ain't no good reason in that. But then down the road, you, you might see it that, you know what? This led to this, and this is why I'm here at this place in my life right now. Yeah. So you're in Colorado. Yeah. How, where do you, how do you end up back? Like, well, how long were you there? Yeah. How, how long did you stay there, and what made you return to Florida? I was there um, about three months. That's okay. it? That's it? Yeah. And then they called you up and said, come back? No, no. I just was, was wanting to go back home. Okay. I'm done. Uh, Pam came back, and she visited me for about a week. Okay. And that's the first time she ever what'd flown she, on a plane. She, I know. What'd she, see, what'd she say when she showed up in Colorado and seen your new life? What'd she say? Well, the new life started developing while she was with me. Yeah. She wasn't into the meditation like I was. No. No, she wasn't into the guru. I was. She wasn't. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So you end up going back to Florida. Going back to Florida. And what did you do when you got there? I um, started working construction again. Again. Yes. And are you, how, are you, I mean, you, are you thinking, man, I'm, I'm going to keep selling weed? Well, no, I, I'm not selling weed You're now. not. I, I quit selling weed. You quit. You got out of it. Right. The day you got clipped? Like, the, the was that I when clipped, you decided, I'm done with this? I'm done with this. And so yeah. even in Colorado, like, you, that was a life just, that is in your past. You're not yeah, going back. I'm not going back. And so you end up kind of leading a pretty straight life. You end up going to a car show, right? There's not yeah. a fair. Well, something happened in between that. What happened? So, I mean, I mean, I grew up dirt biking. I love dirt biking. Myself, my brothers, we, I have a couple of other brothers. One was in Vietnam. My other two brothers, my younger brothers, was with me, so we were dirt biking. Well, uh, my brother had just come home from Vietnam, and uh, my one brother had a 750 Honda. And every paycheck, he was working construction, too. I'm 18 now. He's 17. Every paycheck, he'd put chrome or whatever he could do, whether it was hitters or whatever. He was fixing that 750 Honda up. And I borrowed it one day, go to the beach on a nice cruise and come back. And um, he comes out of the house. We're living with our parents now. And I tell him, man, it's a beautiful day for a cruise. He says, that's just what I'm going to do. I'm going to go for a cruise. So he takes off. I've got a, like a El Camino. I've got a dog I want to take to... Uh, obedience training so I load my dog up in my El Camino I go and I'm driving down the road and there's like this these detours there's a bad accident and I'm going the hell that looks awful bad so I go on to the dog dog uh, canine place the obedience training school and a guy pulls up and says hey man you got to go to the hospital your brother just got in an accident I said oh, I just passed it I saw it so I shoot over to the hospital, and it was my brother Glenn, and he didn't make it. He he had gotten uh, a guy had run like a stop sign and t-boned him. Oh no! And um, so when that happened, I had been at the at the ashram meditating on the weekends and not selling weed, working construction, and for whatever reason, I got away from all the the meditation in the ashram. I, and I went back to selling weed. So that little moment of tragedy it, sort of spun you out. Spun me out, man. Yeah, it spun me out. I, yeah. I said, you know, I don't know. Maybe I was putting a lot of into this, but 
I decided, you know what, this ain't what it's at, and I'm going to get back to doing what I know. Yeah. How long did it take you to come to terms with that loss? Uh, we was re- that was my closest brother. Mm-hmm. And uh took a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, took a while. I, yeah. You know, took, took, took a minute. Took a long uh, time. Yeah. So um, – What's the relationship at that time with the rest of your family? I mean, pretty close. You yeah, live yeah, with yeah. your parents. Yeah, and, we're close, yeah. So how did that change uh, the house? You know, I mean, I, that kind of, you know, we, all of us have kind of dealt with some sort of loss, and yeah. we've seen it destroy families, and we've seen it, you know, it impacts people all different. My, you know, yeah. my sister might deal with something differently than the way I deal with it. Yeah. You know, how did you, uh, how did the house move well, forward? Well, the house, my dad was an alcoholic at the time, and... um Right after that, he stopped drinking. Mm, really? And, yeah. He was a motorcycle guy, too. So uh, he stopped drinking and um, even stopped smoking cigarettes. Mm. So it, uh, it, was, it was tough. Uh, just having, as you know, some, when you lose someone that you love dearly, it hurts. And, but um, in a way, it, uh, it bound us together a little bit. Yeah. Did, I'm sorry, did they know you were dealing? Did your uh, dad know? Yeah, they knew because when I was living with him, in the, in the, they, we had taken a, like a carport and made it a, a bedroom, okay. and that's where I was living. So he knew mm. my own entrance. People was coming in and out, but they was cool. They didn't, they didn't chastise me about it. Yeah. Where's your home at? Like, kind of give me a lay of the land. You got it out in the – I mean, this is the late 60s, early 70s in Florida – is is it how close are your neighbors like how much privacy do you have what's the what's your concern with traffic coming in out of your house like that and what you're doing so uh, the we're living with my parents we were in a neighborhood like any neighborhood so i tried to keep it so it wasn't constant traffic as (laughs) you know i tried to minimize it as best i could yeah and eventually i my first house, I was 17. I moved out and, and leased my first house. So when I came back from Colorado, I lived with them until my brothers passed away. And then I moved back out and got mm-hmm. another house. And um, I, I always look for houses on property. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like a lot of space. A lot, a lot of space. A lot of land. Yeah. So yeah, you don't yeah, have, like, yeah. neighbors. So my neighbors ain't so close. Right, yeah. <laughs> So how did you end up getting interested in, in so you got, you, you love motorcycles. You had a, you know, what, what turned you on to motorsports though? So you go to this car show. I right? go, I go to the car show, uh, Miami beach convention center. And I had been going to Daytona and Sebring watching people race. Mm-hmm. And I ha- had an interest since I was a kid. I just hearing stuff on the AM radios back in the sixties my my grandpa and my uncles would listen to them in the tobacco barn. That's where I would go on every weekend. We'd go and make a homemade ice cream. Uh, I don't yeah. Know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we we turn ice cream. I just Good. I couldn't wait. You know, homemade strawberry or peach or whatever my grandma would have. We'd make homemade ice cream on Sundays mm-hmm. with the family. And I go into tobacco houses and they would be listening. One particular time I wrote about it in the book, uh, the Indy 500 is on. And uh, it was just in, in thr- thrilling to me hearing these announcers announce the race. So I go to, years later, I go to a, a car uh, show in Miami, at Miami Convention Center. 
And there's a booth there from SCCA, Sports Car Club of mm -hmm. America. And they got all these little brochures and all that thing. And I pick one out and I take it home. And I end up putting it on my kitchen table. And it's like if it's talking to me every time I walk by. Yeah. You know, I'm looking at it. You know, call such and such number, right? So I picked up, I called, and they told me everything I needed to do to get a competition license. Mm. What'd and you have to do? First, I had to have a car. That helps. <laughs> Where'd you find this so, car? I'm looking in auto traders and magazines to find a particular car that I wanted. I wanted a Porsche 356 Speedster. How do you know? Uh, just I like the car. Um, I've been going to some club racing. So you kind of knew about the cars, what type I knew, of car you needed. Yeah, I, okay, I, all right. I, I read magazines. and Damn, I am, all right. You know, I'm, I'm just... You're well-versed on it. I'm a kid. I'm not well-versed, just looking. I'm reading, and I, I like this particular car, mm -hmm. a 356. Uh, I thought it was cool. Uh, I know James Dean had gotten killed in a Spider, uh, like, similar but not that type of car. And I always thought he was cool. So I said, I'm going to get me a 356 Porsche and, and, and go racing in the club level as a hobby. So I found one in Tennessee that was kind of rusted up and beat up, been parked for a while. And ended up, someone went and got it for me and brought it back and um, rented me a little thousand square foot bay warehouse. And that was my shop. How much did you pay for it? I paid $7,000 for the car. Damn. That's quite a bit of money. Back, back then. Back then, yeah. I thought, man, I tried to get the guy down, but I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I know. All right. So, um, and you go out. Who's going to go to the racetrack with you? You're going to go my, to your first race. Who's going? My family. My whole family goes. Your whole my family? Dad, really? Sure, yeah. And you yeah. win your first race. I went. Dale, it was unbelievable. I, to this day, <laughs> when I think back, because I had no idea what I was doing. I had went to Sebring and did some uh SCCA competition license where they just signed off because I had so many time, so much time on the track. They signed off, and next thing I know, I'm in West Palm Beach Speedway, and it's my first race. I had qualified in the back. I didn't qualify real well, and um, somehow I don't know. I was hidden to the front. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I just uh, I'm not wishing, like you say, I'm not wishing for any. I'm just driving as hard as I can drive. That's what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ended up winning my very first race I entered in West Palm Beach. And having my dad and my mom and my brothers and everybody there, it was so exhilarating. And we had been there all week barbecuing. You know, we made, yeah. it, we made it a, a trip. Made it a trip all weekend, and, you know, it was nice. How many cars are we talking about ballpark in this race? In this race, it was probably, oh, uh, maybe 12, 13 cars. And you're starting in the back? I started in the back, yeah. Man, it's almost like I want to. There's an explanation out there on how he could win that race, but yet you don't even know it. So you're just saying you just drove yeah, it hard and I win. Drive, yeah. Clearly, you had natural talent that maybe you didn't even know about at the time. But now, are you starting to think I've got a knack for this? Like I, I have, I have that yeah. kind of like unspoken, that uh, intangible. Well, I, I look at race car drivers as myself one, and as I progressed, I didn't look at myself having talent. I looked at myself developing skills. That's, that's me. That's my perspective. Because the more I could get seat time and the more I could practice and the more laps I could get and the more I could get on a skid pad, uh, learning car control, the, the more skills I think I developed. So right. I look at it as not so much talent, but it's a balance between the talent and the skills that one person de develops. Yeah. Are you 
moving enough marijuana right out of the get when you first start racing is this pretty affordable like w- at what point do you start thinking i gotta sell more marijuana because this is costing a lot more money well is that right out of the gate no that's right not right out of the gate because amateur racing was a hobby it's affordable right it was affordable i do it on my time Whichever weekend that I want to take the family or, or do something. And now I'm only doing amateur. I'm doing the East Coast. Yeah. I'm doing Savannah, Georgia, Charlotte, North Carolina, um, Texas World Speedway. Back then they had a mm-hmm. Texas World Speedway. Uh, I do Daytona and I would do Sebring and West Palm Beach. So, But I wouldn't do them on a, just whenever I could afford it and had to, everything was ready. I'd go do these races, and I want to tell you, something about the camaraderie you get with club racing, that is really cool, because yeah. you're barbecuing, and in and, and, and all the racing that I've been involved, if you need a pod, even in the IndyCar racing, if you need a pod or you need something, you got guys ready to give you motors. I mean, you know that. Uh, so the camaraderie was really nice, and um, your question was, about the money, I started realizing when I got into GTP racing, Grand Touring Prototypes for uh, IMSA, International Motor Sanctioning Association. I started racing that. In 1982, I was at Daytona. I got a ride with uh, a Ferrari team. Yep. And that guy ended up, uh, asked me to go to Le Mans. So I, I want to uh, ask you. Yeah. Um, when you look when you look at your career, right? You started racing in seventy. Or you started racing in eighty. Well, started seriously uh, doing the club racing in eighty. Yeah. Right. Was, when did you start racing? Like, uh, when did you run your first competitive race? That one in that a first GTP win? car. Uh, the, the, the very first win with your family. What year that was that? Was uh, probably nineteen eighty. I had been I had been getting my license in seventy nine. Yeah. So when you look back your career do you think you might have went up a little bit too fast why did you not like run in the same class a little bit longer like where it was affordable why did you keep why did you go you're like one this next thing one this trying to move up one this 1984 imps the champion i mean why did what made you so eager to like keep progressing so fast yeah um i just wanted to better myself i guess and and uh the opportunity when I was at Daytona in 1982, I had already I had won the Southeastern Regional Championship, mm-hmm. which is the amateur e-production class, mm-hmm. and I thought it was just a, I just threw it out there to this guy that was in the garage at the Ferrari team, because Janet Guthrie was getting sick. Yeah. He told me, man, one of the drivers is getting sick. I've been hanging out at the garage all day, and I said, oh yeah. I said, well, go tell the the owner that you know someone that can drive. I, I'll replace her. I didn't think nothing was going to happen, for real. I just was telling him, hey, go tell him. He comes back and with the owner and introduces me to him. It was a really unique guy named Preston Hen, just a, a character himself. Yep. Got a cowboy hat on. I mean, you don't see people wearing like – you do with Richard Petty. Yeah. He got a cowboy hat and cowboy boots, and he talks to me. I tell him what I've done with the uh, Porsche. He looks at me. He says, go get your helmet and suit on. Come back. I'm going to give you four laps. And he gives me four laps. And I, his driver was a guy named Bob Wallach. Okay. Real well-renowned factory driver, Porsche factory driver. 
and a German driver named Edgar Dorwin. Mm-hmm. And these are, in the sports car clubs, are the icons of motor racing. I've never driven a Ferrari in my life. I've n- never even sit in one. So I go in, they fit me. They fit me with the, the bags where they pour in the chemicals, and, then it, and they fit me in the seat. And I go out, but I've never driven a car with like a, the, uh, they, in the Ferrari, they got little, the little H-box, little box, the gear shifter. Yep. Huh? Yeah. Shifter. Yeah. The shifter, yeah. but the shifter's got like a pattern with a little slight. It's very narrow. Now, it's got a little, uh, like a metal gate there. Okay. Right. I, I understand. Right. It's not free-flowing. Yeah. It's you just, had to put it in that in the slot gate. Yeah. in the gate. So I've never seen that before. I'm going, oh, okay, this is different. So mm-hmm. I go out um, and do the four laps. Not sure where I was at with as far as comparing to any of the other drivers. And when I come in, the guy's sitting there with a the clipboard, and he shows me my time, says I'm getting out. The owner's standing behind the wall, and I'm like one second off of the guy, the ace number one driver. So he ends up telling me I got a ride. Yeah, that's so, pretty good. Yeah, I was excited. Yeah. And so you, this is at Daytona. That's at Daytona. And so you run the race. Won the race. You won it. No, no, I didn't win you it. ran it. I ran it, yeah. So you get all, you ran a lot of laps in the car? We ran for about 18 hours. Yep, and that was, and he saw enough to invite you to come with them to run Le Mans? Yeah, but I didn't think he was going to ever ask me back because I was in the car when the gearbox let go. <laughs> and I, I ended up coasting in off of the bank, came into the pits. I'm getting out, and Bob Wallach, the French guy, is, he's, he, he's, uh, He's bad-mouthing me that I ran the car off the track, and I didn't. Mm-hmm. And it didn't go over too well. I'm thinking, he's accusing me of breaking the car, but I didn't. And I had told the other driver to shift. The, the, when I got out last, hey, be careful with the gearbox. It's shifting hard. So a few months go by, and I get a call at my shop, ask me if I want to go to Le Mans. That guy, the team. The team owner, yeah. yeah. So when are you putting any money in that deal? I, I put $5,000 into the Ferrari deal. Really? Yeah. To run Daytona? Or? To run Daytona. Yep. Yeah. And so he called you back and asked, asked if you me wanted if I'd to go be, to Le Mans. Go to Le Mans. Did you go? Yes, sir. So you went to it, Le Mans and you started, you raced in Le Mans. We raced in Le Mans, yes. How did that experience go? That experience, we, was quite a story. It's in the book. Uh, I was supposed to drive with a guy named John Paul Jr. Yes. And that's my buddy. Uh, we, John Paul, uh, him and his father, uh, I got to know through racing. And Junior, I just absolutely love. He, mm-hmm. he was a good good guy. May he rest in peace. And um, I was supposed to drive with Junior. We flew over in the Concorde. And John Paul Sr. didn't tell us until we got there that Junior's not showing up. And that he was going to take Junior's place. Mm. Well, that didn't go over good with the team owner. <laughs> and he told him, you're not driving this car. And so we're staying at this, it, this is what blew my mind. We, I, we all rented cars and left and outside of Paris, about 80 miles, is Le Mans. And we pull up into, I don't know what, I'm just following the rental cars. And we pull up to a, they call it a chateau, but it looks like a castle. It's 56 bedrooms, and it's all for the Ferrari team. Wow. 
And that's what I said. Dale, I said, I told my wife, wow. Was she there? Yeah, she, are you sure? I brought oh, her, damn. I brought my brother. Hell yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> amazing. I've, I've never been in Le Mans. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's busy. Yeah. And so we're at this big chateau, 56 bedrooms, and when we pull into this big circular driveway, all gravel, all the maids and the butlers come out and all in white, and they're all sitting there. And it's like they're in unison around, lined up. I'm going, wow, this is racing. I want some of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so John Paul Sr. and Jr., explain who they are. So John Paul Sr. and Jr. are racing champions. They had won quite a few uh, championships and races. They're, uh, I think they were from Georgia mm-hmm. uh, originally. Um, I might be mistaken there. I'm not sure, but um, I had met uh, the I had met John Paul in 1980 at a SCCA National Championships at Road Atlanta, and had a little run in with him on the track. No, oh. outside my motorhome. Uh-oh. What happened? <laughs> I'm out there. I, I like motorcycles, so I'm doing wheelies on a three wheeler. And good heavens, <laughs> uh, right near my motorhome. Yeah. And as I set down my motorhome, a guy comes out for his motorhome and stops. And he says, see all those uh, cars? He's got former Fords. John Paul Jr. was racing former Ford in SCCA where I was doing e-production. Yeah. Mm. Right. It's 1980. Okay. He says, see all that uh, gear over there? You hit anything, I'm hitting you. Well, my brother heard him say that. Well, my brother's ex-Vietnam veteran. He don't take no So he come right over and bowed up on John Paul Sr. And so Sr. ran into his motorhome. What? He went into his motorhome and shut the door. Because now my crew, they're outside thick. Yeah. Telling them, come on out. <laughs> this escalated quickly. This escalated like this. <laughs> and I'm telling them, guys, we're here for racing. We're not here to fight nobody. Yeah. Cut the out yeah all right i mean and so john paul jr comes out and introduces himself i've never met him Mm -hmm. and i we shook hands i said look man i'm here to race man i ain't here to hear all this bull (laughs) and uh so all the team we settled down and we got about doing what we wanted to do race Mm. so john paul uh john paul senior and john paul jr some pretty Interesting characters. Yeah, they yeah. the the senior was a smuggler like I was. Right. He was doing loads Did on. Did you sailboats. know that? I had a suspicion. Okay, I didn't know. I've never it, done anything with him. Right. So is it coinc? It's just coincidence that like at that time of at that time, so it, in this in the in the early eighties, you had the Whittingtons, John Paul Senior and Junior, you. Who else? We don't know. I know a few a <laughs> Is it just a coincidence? I believe. Because that was just what was happening yeah. at that time, that it was so prevalent? So, my opinion, yeah. there are no coincidences. Mm. That's just my thought. Yeah. All right? There's no coincidences. I ended up, from that meeting of John Paul Sr., who we, did, we butted heads almost, another little short story. I'm in Daytona. That was 1980 when I met John Paul Sr. Mm-hmm. So in 1982, I get a ride with the Ferrari team, and we uh, DNF'd. We didn't finish. So after it was all over and we packing up, I go to the owner's motorhome. And back then, a little bit of prevalent, prevalent cocaine. Uh-huh. So 
we started partying. Mm -hmm. He said, and we're talking, and the person that won the race was John Paul Sr. He won the 24 Hours of Daytona oh, okay. that year. Mm -hmm. So we're talking so, something, and uh, I'm telling him, yeah, I tell him the story I just told you about my run-in with the winner that okay. just won the 24 Hours of Daytona. So we're talking, and a few minutes go by. He says, hang on right here. I'll be back. I got somebody I want you to meet. So he leaves the motorhome. I'm sitting there. Here he comes. The door opens. And he brings in John Paul Sr. <laughs> <laughs> he just won. Huh? He just won. He just won, won yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I stand up because now I, I haven't talked to him since Sit. we almost fought in, in right. uh, Road Atlanta. Yeah. Uh, which the Winningtons owned. Okay. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had bought That's that That's right. Shot. Yeah, yeah. Which is a whole other story. I'd That's tell you right. Later. We'll get into the winning. <laughs> so there's John Paul Sr. Now we become friends. Mm -hmm. All right. And later on, when I go to prison, I'm in Leavenworth, Kansas. And who comes to prison? He comes in, John Paul Sr. So I spent a couple of years with him walking the yard every day. We went through a riot together. Well, damn. Uh, on, what? The, on the yard. Uh, so. You know, it's it's nice to have someone that you can you act. You knew and you know that your bro got you back mm -hmm. because when stuff goes down, it ain't pretty. And so, uh, just so happened there was a riot at Leavenworth on uh, July the the fifth, nineteen ninety one, and J Senior and I was out on the wreck yard. It all got locked down. A lot of beat downs. A lot of fighting. A lot of just drama. So how long did this last? It lasts till about two o'clock in the morning till we was outside. We supposed to be in by eight o'clock at night in our cells. So they lock. So basically they locked <clears throat> you in the yard. They locked us in. They locked us. The people that was in the yard in the yard. They locked you there. They, yeah. And they can't until. And this is out of control. It's out of control. They take over the auditorium, which is a huge auditorium. It probably seats a thousand people. Huge auditorium. They were showing a movie, Silence of the Lambs. That night um, for the holiday weekend. Mm -hmm. So the inmates took over the auditorium in the theater, and they took over the kitchen, and they took over the rec yard. And so you're in the yard trapped. Trapped. Were you in danger? Um, no, I, I have no, I didn't think I had any enemies there. That usually the people that are in danger are people that uh, has got uh, something going on with a, a clique or a group or a mm -hmm. gang. And I'm I'm independent. I haven't I'm not gang affiliated yeah. or anything. I, I'm not well versed on prison riots, so I'm asking dumb questions here. But did you have do you have any inclination that it's going to start? Like, do you have and an idea that a riot is about to happen? It spun off like this. Damn. What happened is somebody killed a guy in the main corridor. He had stabbed him to death at the lieutenant's office. I didn't know that. I'm out on the yard, but some of these gangs knew this. So I'm getting ready to go in. They had just blew the big horn to go. Time to go in. And Leavenworth, when the sun gets, it's a 40-foot wall. And when the sun gets below that wall, it's time to go in. Because the shadows and so forth. Yeah, you just go in. That's when they call. They have yard recall. Mm -hmm. So they blew rod recall, and that's when they killed the guy in the main corridor. And a whole bunch of guys, as I was starting to leave. A bunch of guys ran by me with knives and what? and back then we had weights, barbells, arm yes. curl bells. They using them as weapons, and they're trying to get out to go to the main prison, and they end up beating down a guard. And when they beat the guard down, that's when 
all hell broke loose because now they did not only kill the guy in there, but they're putting their hands on a guard. Mm -hmm. So now I get back and I see John Paul Sr. And him and I, they had a little putt-putt putt -putt golf course yeah. there. So we went and grabbed a couple of clubs and got up on top of the bleachers. We'd get in high ground and we got each other's back. Because now there's people fighting around the, 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 the soccer field. They're breaking into the industry where the print factory is and setting fires. They're breaking into the kitchen. I see smoke coming up from the kitchen. Uh, we don't know, but we assume something's happening because there's smoke coming from the uh, roof of the big prison. They done took over the kitchen, it looks like. And we didn't know all the chaos that's going on inside with the yeah. prisoners. Holy Outside. Oh God, uh, I imagine 27 years in, in, in prison, you're going you to experience stuff. some things. Oh, bro, I got stories that just, it, it's <laughs> uh, unfortunately a lot of sad stories. Yeah. Uh, I Seeing people get hurt and killed, it, it's not a good thing. Mm. Where were we before we got to prison? So, right? yeah, I don't I know. Remember. <laughs> he's, me, he's talking to John, John Paul. Paul. Oh, John that's right. Yeah, post winning the oh, yeah, yeah. 24 hours. So, so, you so I'm in the motorhome with John Paul Sr. And, and the owner of the Ferrari team, and we become good friends. And uh, that was amazing how we, we were combating almost in 1980, but here it is in 82. Everything's forgotten, and yeah. we're good now. And so. Um, you go to Le Mans. You race. You raced in Le Mans. I mean, this is why your this this is why your career had such a rapid ascension is because you're getting these opportunities. You know, these these opportunities are just coming quickly, and you're taking them. Like yeah. So once you go to Le Mans, you're you're now like, hey man, I'm going. I'm going top. I'm going racing I'm now. Going to the yeah. Top. So I come back to the states, and a couple of my friends own race teams, the Whittingtons a guy named Marty Hines, and some other people that I know that are, uh, because I'm at the track. Yeah. When you get to the track, yeah, you yeah. end up meeting yeah. people. Yeah. So so I'm getting to know the drivers, the team owners and stuff, and I'm always asking, hey, I, I, you know, plug me in, man, let me go. Yeah. And I'm getting rides with other teams, having some success, um, third place in mall sport, six hours in mall sport, uh, a lot of DNFs, so. though. Hmm. Um, breaking parts, breaking bre stuff, breaking parts, driving other people's stuff, driving other people's stuff. Because, as you know, if you're not magna fluxing and you're not replacing stuff mm -hmm. that's new from gears to whatever it is, you're going to have stress so let's, somewhere. So, let's just say it's you know, 1982, 83. What is your smuggling operation at this time? And when I was a teenager, I started bringing in loads for other smugglers. So you went out and on boats to the Bahamas? To the Bahamas. Right. Yeah, 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 cigarettes yep. and stuff. So right. Baloo told us, he said the first trip he ever went on, the guy said, I just need somebody to go on the ride to count the bells. When it goes to the dock, <laughs> count the bells. Yeah. And that was his only job. Yeah. And there were like six or seven guys on the boat. Yeah. And he said he went, and he was so angry by how unprofessional the whole thing was and how easily they could have got busted that he decided he was never going to do that again, that if he ever did it, he'd gonna run the whole, he's going to be the guy be the in guy. charge. <laughs> So, um, it, you got cigarette boats. I had, uh, I bought my first, uh, cigarette boat, uh, 27 foot sport Magnum. Strictly to smuggle. Uh, no. Nope. I bought it for, uh, to, Partying. to yes. Yeah. I bought to it just to, just to go jump waves. Yeah. I, I like to jump waves. And okay. It's uh, that gets you adrenaline. When right. you're jumping a eight foot, six foot wave and you're up in the air and then you throttle it coming back down, it's badass. So how did you end up? Getting to where you were going to make a run with the boat. So um, an opportunity came. 
that someone asked me if I would uh, lease them the boat or rent them the boat to let them use to run a load of weed in. Did you feel comfortable and with that? I didn't, no. I said, no, I'm not letting you use my boat. Are you, <laughs> are you nuts? And he says, well, uh, maybe we can work something out. So I come to an idea that if you want to give me 30% of what I bring in, I'll take it. Mm-hmm. And that's what we worked out. 30%. 30%. You were going to go get it? I'll go get it. I'll go, un- I'll go unload it and bring it into your house and uh, just give me 30%. That's low. And I'll sell it. Oh, but I sell it, too, if you want me to. Uh-huh. So I get to sell it, and I get 30%, 30% of what. So if I bring in 1,000 pounds, I'll get 300 pounds. Nice. So that was my first load uh, at 19. 19 years old. 19 years old. Were you scared? Uh, I think I was more excited and, 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 and coming in uh, at nighttime with a boat full of weed. It was a, a adrenaline, excited, and you feel like you're King Kong. Yeah. Uh, I can't, look, you feel like you're invincible. Right. And so— When you went down to the Bahamas, did you know all your connections, and was that all pretty straightforward? Do you feel pretty organized? Yeah, when I was doing that, I was offloading for other smugglers. So I wasn't going to meet nobody but a ship. Oh, so you go out? You didn't go. That's not my stuff. You didn't drive to land, and you didn't you didn't take the boat down to the Bahamas and beach, and then you know load up and then or dock. No, I just left Fort you Lauderdale. Met, you left Fort Lauderdale, met a, met a ship. Yeah. So you were you were meeting halfway or something. That, well, Fort Lauderdale and Bimini is only fifty miles. Okay. So you go to Bimini, refuel, top your tanks off, mm-hmm. and then you go out into the Gulf Stream or wherever you're supposed to meet, get on the radio and start calling a code. You hook up with the mothership, you <laughs> meet them, you unload, and it's at nighttime, and you shoot back to Fort Lauderdale or Miami, wherever you're coming in, all the keys. Empty? Full. Full. Full of weed. Okay. And that's how it's done. How do you offload it? That, that year, that time, my first, first time one. is we yep. had a house on a canal and I just, we drove up to, we motored up to the house and unloaded and put it in the house. Right there, and, yeah. Yeah. And Damn. Van's come and get it. Van, then and, it's done. And you said that's a 50-mile run? Uh, yeah. One way? Yeah. How long does that take you to actually drive it, though? Well, it, like it, a- it depends. The, the first time I went, we had calm seas. Okay. <laughs> so it was like, yeah. oh, this is easy. Right, yeah. But didn't think about that. The next time I went. It wasn't so easy because it was real rough seas, and it's a whole another whole another world. I've had stuff to where you know, I, I've gotten called in tropical depressions like hurricanes, and they develop sometimes before you can get your, your yourself loaded, and now you're trapped because I you can't cross the Gulf Stream. The waves are twenty feet big, so you get yourself in some precarious situations so like an hour does it take an oh, it takes long, longer than an hour longer than an hour yeah. okay yeah. so um <laughs> after doing this so yeah it is so after doing this a little while are you aware of how many other people are doing the same thing you're doing sure because i'm selling a lot of other smugglers weed now now my business is growing i've mm-hmm. gotten i went from one stash house to three and I've got three or four smugglers that's given me weed. Hey, I got 10,000 pounds here. Can you sell it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what kind of price? Give me a good price. So now I'm selling other people's weed and asking to help them offload. Is it, <clears throat> is, it just seems like a, a lot of weed. Like, is there, is, is the demand just demand, through the roof? Yes. Demand has always been there. And 
look, I started smoking. I've been smoking weed for 53 years. I was smoking before I even knew anything about it being medicine. Mm -hmm. But now they find out this plant helps post-traumatic stress disorder, helps with anxiety. I've got six friends that are in remission of cancer right now due to RSO, Rick Simpson oil, pure oil that they take instead of chemo. They had six friends that are in remission right now mm. from cancer. So it helps cancer, helps multiple sclerosis. It helps with seizures. Mm -hmm. This plant heals in a multitude of ways. So through anxiety, depression, or anything like that, if you find the right strain that works for you, it works. Uh, for, for real. So that's why the demand is there, and it's been there for ages. They've been, this plant has been being used for thousands of years. The Egyptians used to burn nine pounds a day. Like, you know how they burn incense? The Egyptians used to burn it just nine pounds in the thing. This is thousands of years ago. Mm -hmm. So the demand has always been there. Okay. So how many boats did you have at the peak? Before we ever went barging, right. <laughs> how many boats, cigarette boats, you know, bow riders or uh, cabin boats? Yeah. So I had a 28-foot, 27-foot uh, Magnum, 28 cigarette, 36 cigarette, a 32 Sea Ray, 68-foot mm -hmm. uh, trawler. Good heavens. You had a Navy. And um, then I got into the tugboats and barges. Yeah. So <laughs> who uh, in the Netflix series, we get to know Alan and Charlie. Charlie. I just talked to Alan this morning. Really? How's hmm. Alan doing? Alan is doing good. He is He's doing ex abs ex exceptionally good. He's uh, like a manager at a graphic design spot that um, does uh, good stuff. They do cool graphic designs for big traction trailers and car. They do race cars. Okay. They're down in uh, near West Palm Beach. Okay. So, take a second and tell us exactly who he is and where you met <laughs> yeah. him. Because like, if you haven't watched the Netflix special like we sure. have... Yeah, we don't know who Alan is. So Alan is a co-defendant that uh, a friend of mine since I was 14 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually have a lot of friends that were in my life all my life. Still <laughs> yeah. there today. Still there today. That's just that's how I roll. Yep. And so Alan was a, a childhood friend from 14, and at 15, him and I hitchhiked to Canada. Uh, my dad wanted me to cut my hair. My dad was like a little not a hard ass, but you know, he grew up in the country. All that long hair stuff. It wasn't for him. Dude, he, <laughs> he won't on that time. <laughs> so I'm 15. He wanted me to cut my hair. I'm a 15-year-old not wanting to cut my hair and smoke mm -hmm. weed. So I took off to Canada, uh, hitchhiked. At 15. Imagine doing that today. Yeah, no way. <laughs> oh, no way. Yeah. You, are you kidding me? So... My my brothers had told him, "Hey, he's going to he's going to his grandma's house first in Virginia." That's what I told my brothers to tell my dad, and my mom, mm -hmm. that I'm going to grandma's. So as I did, I showed up at grandma's. That's the first spot I went, and we stayed we stayed three or four days. And they're begging me to come home. They're going to give me a plane ticket, but no, I got my mindset. Going to Canada. I'm going to Canada, you and Alan. it was the year that they had the Woodstock Festival. Mm -hmm. It was like 1969. So Alan's been a friend for a long time. Alan's been a friend. Then, so Alan caught a case with me. He was he ended up being an offloader for me. <clears throat> he worked uh, when I would bring loads in. He was one of the many people that was on a shift of offloading uh, the bales. And when all the things went down, Alan he stood up. Stood up. Yep. 
Yeah. Yeah. He was facing uh, 15 years, and um, he ended up serving one third of his time. He served five years. Yeah. And he's still my buddy today. Yeah. So you see him how often? I see him uh, maybe once a month or two. Yeah. Yeah. How close? How far apart are y'all distance? He lives in uh, Lake Worth. I live in Davie, and we're probably about an uh, hour away from gotcha. each other. Okay. Mm. And the other fellow that we know in the documentary or that I know is Chuck Charlie. Right. So he's, he's a banker. A, yes, he was my my bookkeeper. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and it at the end of the show. So Ch- Ch- you and how how did y'all meet? I forget. He started having connections to, for me to sell marijuana at the community college. Yep, and he owned the home that where you could stash, right? He had. No, he he would lease homes for he me. He would lease homes. He was right. he was real clean cut. He was the guy that could be the front. Yes, yeah. exactly under different names. So he would lease stash houses for me. And then he ended up being kind of the accountant, the bookkeeper, um, and he was the, he was unfortunately the way that y'all went down because uh, uh, and we'll talk about that, but. In the end of the show, so Charlie's the guy that that was the the state's witness. He was one of the main witnesses against me. Right. Yes. And so, in the end of the uh, Netflix show, you and Charlie meet again. Yep. Was that we really, had dinner together? That was the first time you'd That's seen first him. First time I've, 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 I've seen him. Yep. Wow. Yep. So you had he was one of he was the one guy. Uh, the top guy that that puts you away, uh, and you, as you said, went through uh, some forgiveness. Went through. Took me. Look, it took me eighteen years yes. to come to a point to understand. I found that so phenomenal. Yeah, it that took me. You a and while. him yeah. would go sit in the same yeah. room and break bread. And break bread. Yeah. Was yeah. that was that orchestrated because of the Netflix documentary, or did you want to do that on your own? No. It, well. Uh, the Netflix uh, director and producer, they had been in touch with him because mm-hmm. of that, and they asked me how I felt about, uh, you know, talking to Charlie. I said, oh, I have no problem. I, you know, look, I want everybody to do good, yeah. and I want everybody to have a happy life. Uh, I don't wish bad against no one. So I said, I'm good with him, man. So uh, we talked. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm all about it. Uh, you know, so let's have dinner. So you did. So we did. Alan doesn't feel the same way though. No, Alan's no still and I still talk to him about that because <laughs> you want Alan to call, you want Alan to forgive. <laughs> Look, uh, <laughs> forgiveness is the cornerstone, for real, of living a a life of of abundance and joy. Of because when we don't forgive, we're actually stymieing ourselves. I. Uh, you know, because now it's like you're hemming up yourself because you can get burdened down with stuff that you don't even realize is happening to you because maybe you got an attitude or you got a resentment towards somebody. So these resentments and stuff, you don't need to live with. You don't. Right. So you've talked you know? to Alan about that? Yeah, I've talked What's to Alan him. Alan say? Yeah, he's hogwash. Yeah. He don't <laughs> <laughs> I can tell Alan's not going to be he easy. Ain't, he ain't bending right now. No. He, <laughs> he doesn't seem to mince words. Like, he just puts it all yeah, out there. He's yeah. not happy with Chuck, and yeah. he's. it didn't look yeah. like he was uh, going to turn that corner anytime soon. No, same. he's not right now. I, I look, and you know what? I haven't given up on him. I wouldn't I, either. So, uh, I wouldn't either. You get into the prototypes, racing in IMSA. Yep. And, uh, Lo- love the prototypes. Right. And you, who is your co-driver? Bill Whittington. Bill Whittington. 
He's got a brother. May he rest in peace. He yeah. just died last he year. He did. Yeah. Bill did? Yeah. Yeah. He crashed a Merlin doing, he was doing, he took a guy out for, he spent the last three days with me before he passed away. Oh, Hadn't seen him in 30 years. He came, we spent three days together. He went back to Arizona and uh, they used to race airplanes. And okay. so one of his buddies uh, had uh, terminal cancer mm. and he was going to take him up for a flight and he was in a Merlin doing figure eights. Damn. Running about 300 miles an hour doing figure eights. But that's not why he crashed. He had done finished the, the, the figure eights and loops and was heading back to Scottsdale to the airport. And so we don't know what happened. Uh, he had done all the... The stunts he was done. Yeah, he was he headed was, back. He was headed back. Yeah, and so we don't know why, why what happened. Oh man. Yeah. So, so your race, but, but going back to your question, you uh, you're starting to race when with you, those guys, yeah. so the Whittingtons. When you, when you, yeah. Well, when you partner partner up with him, do you know about his past or his history? Yeah, what he's doing, you yeah, knew. We got some. Uh, we got some business together. Y'all were working together occasionally. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, which is convenient. You're gonna go racing. <laughs> yeah. You're making. You know. You're yeah. kind of. And he had a stable of 935 Porsches. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I drove for them a couple of times. And uh, those 935s, if you've never driven one, you got to get in one. Yeah. They're raw. Mm-hmm. Ain't no anti-lock brakes. Ain't no car control. Yeah. It's 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 badass. Right. They're, they're awesome. And so you and him partner up yeah. and build a team. And when you started Blue Thunder, yeah, what did you call it Blue Thunder for? Well, I had ordered a tractor trailer, and it hadn't arrived yet. And we've got a, a race coming up, and my crew chief says he can get me a tractor trailer until hours come in. And the driver showed up at my shop, and on front of his tractor trailer was a tag that said Blue Thunder. And I talked to the driver, the owner and the driver, and I said, you know, out of respect, I'm going to name my team Blue Thunder. And that's how we named okay. Blue Thunder. So Blue Thunder Racing is the team that you started and won the 1984 IMSA Championship with. Yeah. And your partner and driver is Don Whittington. Bill. Bill, sorry. Yeah. Bill, Don's Bill Whittington. Bill's older brother. Got you. Who own You own the team 100% outright? Or is I, it I own the team. Outright. Yeah. Y'all got two Bill cars. was just a driver. Why, do you have two, why did you want to do two cars? Is that just a common thing? Everybody, every team had two cars? You wanted to spend twice as much money What's no not every car had not every car every team had two cars right but um in some of these races like the sprint races like laguna seca uh, you get it done in an hour mm-hmm. if i only got one car only one of us is going to drive yeah so yeah. i bought ah. a car for bill and said hey you know that way we're both going to be racing racing mm-hmm. yeah and you're at the start of the season, are you aware right out of the gate that you got a shot at winning the championship? No. When did that develop? No, I had no idea. Yeah. I, no, well, I missed my first couple of races. Why? I had a load coming in. <laughs> so you missed part what? of the season? Yeah. And you weren't going to be there? You didn't yeah. have other people that could I do missed, this? I missed Atlanta. Uh, missed Atlanta. Uh, Bill took, uh, I think Bill took second. And his brother won it uh, in 1984. I had raced in... Um, Sebring, we took second place in Sebring. Uh, that was my premiere of the racetrack of mm-hmm. the Blue Thunder team. Um, Why couldn't someone else handle that? Handle what? The, the load. load. Because uh, 
I guess that's just how I was rolling at the time. And a lot of times when you get in these these smuggling operations, no one wants to deal with anybody else. Good uh, point. They okay. don't. Yeah, they yeah, don't. Yeah. They know you, and they trust you. Mm-hmm. And I tried to do that later on. They go, no, look, we don't know him. We don't want to talk to him. We don't want to meet him. So the <laughs> thing about doing yeah. that kind of activity, yeah. you have to comp- compartmentalize a lot of operations because you don't want everybody from this part of the operation uh. to know everybody from this part of the operation because if something went down, they, don't, they can only say what they know. They don't know who's involved with the offloading. Wow. They don't yeah. know who's involved with the with the warehouses, mm-hmm. they don't know, you know, you compartmentalize. Mm. So Baloo is doing runs on boats similar to the, the boats that you had to, yeah. uh, to Florida. They're racing. Uh, do you, do you, does that, do you, are you hearing any of those names back then? In I'm the hearing those names. You are hearing I, those I've names. I've never met Curry. Right. Uh, but you're hearing, I'm you're, hearing those names. All the people that are in that world kind of he- are hearing. Sure. And so, his operation uh, ran their product all. I mean, his operation started in Florida, got the, you know, and was working, uh, getting loads from Bahamas, but his operation ran all the way up to the Northeast. Yeah. Racers up there and the modifieds and all that. I mean, there were this whole traffic or network of, of people involved in motorsports, even here in Charlotte, uh, were moving their product all oh. up and down the East Coast. Are you only aware of what you're doing in your operation, or do you know where all of this product goes once you get it? Once you get my, it in the warehouse, and, yeah, and you're selling, do you know where all that happens? So from my deal is my distributors, and I only had about four distributors. I tried to keep it three to four. I didn't want a lot of distributors. And they would tell me, well, I'm shipping a tractor and trailer to Michigan. I'm sending a tractor and trailer to Kentucky. Or I'm sending it to South Dakota, wherever they're sending it. They would tell me sometimes. And if I asked, they would tell me. But uh, once I g- would give a load to somebody, it's their business where they send it. I yeah. really don't yeah. care. What do you care? I don't care. Right. But if they gave me the information, uh, that's fine. What's the um, – so what is the – concern for you i guess this goes back to my very first question what at this time in your life right so i'm I, i'm pretty uh i'm high anxiety like just in general as a person right and if i had if i had your history if i had chose that life i would be i'd be nervous to be uh i'd be looking over my shoulder all day every day right where are you in terms of being comfortable with that I'm sure when you were in the middle of it, you were worried about people. Probably were worried about you talking, you what you might, you know, names you might say, or or connections that you have. Or, but now you're able to basically kind of live your life on your terms. I love it. Right. I, I mean, love how every minute of my would, life. Right. But I would assume that once you choose to be in that world, you're never you have you never can be free of it. And the, 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 the implications and the dangers, right, and the connections. And it's such a good feeling to be free of it. How, though? <laughs> you never got anxiety over that? I'm sure I did. I, um, At what point, um, though, do, do you go, you know what, I, I no longer have to worry about any of the repercussions from being part of that, following you, right, forward into this new life, right? Was it because you did the time? Was it because you proved that you uh, – 
you know, you're, you're going to take all of the secrets to your grave. I mean, help me kind of understand. Uh, I felt the same way with, with Gary, right? You know, Gary's able to go on and live his life and carry on and, and, and he's fine. He's happy. And he's, he's, he feels fortunate. It's such a dangerous world that a lot of people never escape. Yeah. How are you able, how are you able to escape it? Well, one thing is I didn't escape it. <laughs> they locked my ass yeah. out for 27 years. So once I got pinched and maybe there was some relief, you know what, this is over. But na- now I've got to just deal with the legal issues and move on. Yeah. And with that said, going to the Supreme Court four times, trying to get myself out, uh, going through massive amounts of motions, uh, legal motions to, one of my big arguments was that it was cruel and unusual punishment Mm -hmm. to lock up anybody for a life sentence for marijuana. And I still say that today, that it should never be scheduled a scheduled one narcotic. And that's what I was charged with, was importing and distributing a scheduled one narcotic. I don't look at it that way. I look at it a little different that this plant's a healing plant and no one should be given a life sentence for this plant. Mm. So, but to get away from that lifestyle and now be out here, I realized the many bad choices that I did make because I was doing, as I spoke earlier in this interview, I spoke about outside priorities and inner priorities and, uh, it's a true statement. Uh, yeah. When we put our attention on our outside priorities and we might be chasing our dreams and they all might be coming true, but are we neglecting what's really important? But you're, so when you get it, so what makes you decide to, how do you make a decision to, to get a barge? Like where, you, that's not, a, that's not next step from, from yeah. trawler. So right? that, that decision was, pretty easy to make because his, <laughs> I'm going to tell you I met one of my one of my distributors from New York he says I got somebody I want you to meet I said yeah who's that he says you got to meet Gene he owns a tugboat and salvage operation in Santa Domingo mm-hmm. and I think you guys would be good friends I said alright so I meet Gene and he brings his partner with him well they got these barges and they got these tugboats, but we mainly we're talking about tugboats first. We didn't talk about the barge. They've got these tugboats, 150-foot tugboats, and they want to know if I want to use them to bring in uh, loads of weed. So I said, yeah, damn Skippy, you're talking to the right guy. <laughs> so we initially used the tugboat to bring in 35,000 pounds up in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Okay. I, I know very little about tugboats, but what I know, they don't go fast. They don't go fast. And I can't, I can't really envision them, you know, doing a drug run. Maybe that's why that's, that's the perfect that's vehicle. The, that's it? Yeah. It, when but isn't it suspicious when a tugboat is going 50 miles offshore? He's, just doing, he's probably well, pushing a barge somewhere, t- right? T- tugboats in just New Orleans, they're loaded up with them I got it. in New Orleans. But you're right. The tugboats back then wasn't so suspicious as a trawler, a okay. shrimp boat. They was more suspicious. Got it. So we ran my the first tug, tugboat that we brought in. I brought up 
the Hudson River up to Bridgeport, Connecticut. So let wow. one quick question. So from from the first boat from the first run you made with your cigarette boat or whatever it was that you took down there to the to the tugboat, had you ever been busted? Had you ever been even close to getting no. caught? You had uh, no worries. No, I got arrested when I was 15 years old <laughs> with yeah. an ounce of weed. I was at the beach. <laughs> so you, at this point, you by the time you're in tugboats, uh, you had evaded or never been under. Right. You weren't even worried about. You like, man, I, I, everything. No, I haven't gotten well. any problems. Had no. any distributors or any people that you were familiar with been busted? Because wasn't it yes. true that, there, that, yes. that the government was ratcheting up the pressure yes. on this? Yes, and I had. Other, other smuggler friends who did get pinched yeah. with thousands of pounds of weed on their vessels. And when those things would happen, would you like? I'd be concerned. This is my last run. I'm on one more time. Well, one more run. <laughs> one more. <Yeah. laughs> I'd be concerned that what, you know, because this guy might know a little bit about my business. Yeah. And back then, oh, they was giving out like three years, five years, and they wasn't giving out these. Long, lengthy gotcha. death sentences. So people would go in and Come they'd right be out. gone for two years or three years and they'd be right back out. Right back in the game. Right back in the game. Okay. And, and I know we're trying to parallel with the, the racing because I think that it's fair to say with, with you starting Blue Thunder Racing, which Dale was asking about, and you pairing up with the Whittingtons, who are also in this game, yep. you basically fund that operation with smuggling, right? To- or totally. Bus- that is mind blowing. One hundred percent from weed money. <laughs> so, so I guess that's the reason why. Well, that's one of the reasons why you're okay to miss a race to handle a load because that is your financial source to do the racing to begin yeah, with, right? About fifty million dollars worth of weed coming in, <laughs> right, on one boat. On one boat. How much of the month? How how much of that fifty million dollars is technically yours in the end? About fifteen. Fifteen. God, holy. Oh. And how often would one of these $50 million loads so that, happen? Well, after my first one, I did, in 1983, I did four loads in one year. Not all big loads. It was um, 15000 35000 and 110000 After that, I just stopped and said one a year. I didn't need to do all <laughs> You're just going to do one a year. One a year. And that was enough. Right. And you, got re- you weren't doing any more of the little boats, right? Nope. Right, so nope. you just got this one barge. There's one barge. Do you have? Do you own? It, it's a fi- outfitted barge. With my, a, my my co-defendant Gene owned it. All right, and the yeah. boat was fitted to be able to put all this in the bi- in the bottom. Well, that was a mistake, which I don't know where it came from, but oh, not true. A, a mistake in the uh, in the no, Netflix piece. No, yeah, I told them how I did it. It's not the bottom; it's the sides. Okay. The barge has ballast all the way down the sides, not on the bottom. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. So you put your manifest on the bottom. Mm-hmm. So what we did is down the sides of this long barge, we welded three-quarter inch steel as a platelet. Because that, they pump water into the sides of the barge to create balance. So when the barge is empty, if they pump water, it'll ride through the waves mm-hmm. nice. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it's loaded and they got millions of pounds of weight, They'll pump all the water out. So we took the barge and welded three-quarter inch steel down the sides and made compartments. And then when we got to Columbia, we'd cut big manholes out of the side of the barge, put the weed in it, 
squelled it all back, pumped water into the ballast. So it, you know, when we get to where we're going. And they see water. They see water. And I've even had customers uh, uh, pump water out and want to drill a hole and stuff. But uh, what, Customs did. Customs did. They wanted to drill a hole in On my last load, yeah. And did they find anything? No, they broke two drill bits. They, <laughs> <laughs> they, and they, they was drilling. They pumped the water out. They got down and and got the kit and got the. This is I'm I'm being reported all this from the broker service that we use. You're to, not there. I'm not there. I'm a, this barge came into San Francisco. And so this is happening, and you're not there. And you're how you this ain't like you got a damn cell phone where you can get like. Right, that, right no, then, you're not no, getting no, information so, immediately. No, you're no, probably sitting there right. going, holy sh! I tell you where I was at. I was over near the wharfs in San Francisco with binoculars looking were, at my bar. Oh, oh my shit. God. <laughs> you know, I'm going, what the hell? It's been there for two days, man. Oh, my so God. All they, right. What happened is the Coast Guard come in. They take everybody's passport and tell them they can't come ashore yet. But then they come back, and they got a little crew with a kit, and it's got drills in it. And they, they had pumped the water out, and they go to drill to see what's below because they pumped all the water out. And I guess they wasn't putting, like, oil or liquid on the drill bit, and it got hot. Yeah. I think it was a rookie Coast Guard. It must have been. And the second drill, he pulls out, and it breaks. They leave. They don't come back. The next day, they come back with everybody's passport and tell them to walk them ashore. Jeez. Man, Mike, that's pretty incredible uh, to be able to talk to Randy. We, you know, I've seen a lot of uh, things that he's done in the past and know a lot, a lot about his stories, so it was awesome to be able to, you know, you got questions. Some of those stories that you hear just uh, provide more questions than answers, and so to have the chance to really sit down with him and talk to him about that. And the story is so deep. There is so many layers to it. I think that... Um, we, you know, we got to split this into two parts. Yeah, so let's uh, let's do that because we want to make sure that this whole thing gets told right. He gave us a lot of vivid detail about his drug smuggling operation and how he used it to fund his race team. I can promise you this part two coming up is just as exciting and just as crazy as part one. All right, Randy Lanier, part one is in the books. Part two coming soon. Everybody, it's Dale Jr. and uh, welcome to the Ask Jr. portion of the show. I'm just trying to send a Instagram story out. Um, Alex has got your questions that you sent into Xfinity Racing on Twitter. And, uh, excited to get to them today. Yep. Uh, for our first question is from Floyd Mead. Um, Dale, besides auto racing, what sport would you like to commentate for? Um, I don't think any. Really? Yeah. I'm. I, you know, I. I'll be honest with you, man. I love going and doing the extra things that NBC sends me to. And uh, and it's a great experience going to the Olympics and all those things. Uh, but to be a full time broadcaster in a different sport, I I I, I don't really uh, I don't want to pursue that. I really don't. So I mean, I love being in the I love being in the booth for for the races. That's where I belong. That's where I feel at home. And that's what I know. And uh, and so that's 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 where that's where my heart's at, man. It, that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our next one's from Adam Peterson. Uh, with the huge crowd last weekend at Iowa for the IndyCar race, do you think NASCAR should return to that track? At IRP? At uh, Iowa. Iowa, sorry, yeah. Iowa. For the IndyCar race? Yeah, it was about, you know, two um, years ago. I, uh, 
I don't know. I've never been. So this is I can't answer this because I've never been to a race there. Never. And so I went out there to test years ago, back when we were doing the COT, uh, and this is a long time ago. But um, I have never been to a race at that track, so I don't know the energy or the vibe. You know, when you walk into a track, you feel it, right? You feel how cool the place is, and uh, I'm sure it's great. And and I know that the drivers love racing there. The multiple grooves that you can run, race watching races there is pretty fun because you know there's there's a lot of different ways to go around the corner and opportunities to pass and so forth but uh i don't know you know i think i'm curious uh if as to what it would what it would be like and how successful maybe a cup race would be um and the track uh even though some of the dates as far as the uh the the top three series even the dates are kind of coming and going the track seems to be doing really well you know they had a fantastic uh you know kind of pop for the uh indycar uh, series when they visited there and everything High V did to to kind of promote that and that was pretty impressive. So I, I I would be interested in going out there and seeing what it felt like go broadcast a race there that kind of kind of be fun to do. Uh, next questions from Ira Gibson. Uh, do you still have the '95 Impala from MTV Cribs? No, uh-uh. no. I sold that and I wish I didn't. Um, but I don't know. I mean how. Uh, Back then, that car was cool. I don't know if it'd be cool today. Oh, I, uh, old '95 like Impala. Oh yeah, I think yeah. it'd be cool. <sighs> I wish I still had it. Um, that thing had a decal across the bot- across the side of it, so the side had a trim on the door right around midway, and below that, it had a silver. And it just said Impala. It went all the way down the side of the car. <laughs> I Jeez. thought that was cool. Um, and uh, it was. We had 15s in the back deck behind the passenger seats. Man, that thing was loud. <laughs> it was awesome. I mean, we rode down the road and that thing playing the music far, far too loud for our health. <laughs> yeah. Uh, next one's from Ryan Johnson. Uh, he says, I've been spending my free time going through your Xfinity Championship years on YouTube. Uh, and there's a race at Dover in 1999 that you battled for the lead and the championship with Matt Kenseth. Uh, you both got together and wrecked, and Matt didn't seem too happy with you. Did you do you remember that Dover. at all? Dover? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Um, I mean, it was embarrassing for me uh, because I usually try to not to make mistakes and especially trying to not make a mistake that's going to take somebody out. Me and Matt were buds. We'd kind of hang out with each other and go to each other's houses and so forth or whatever. And, um, yeah, we were definitely in the middle of a close points battle at the time. Uh, of, at that moment in the year, the battle was pretty – I felt a lot of pressure from Matt uh, in terms of just trying to win the championship. And he had the best car that day. Multiple times had beaten us on restarts and gotten out and led and uh, had had a comfortable uh, – he had a car that he was going to win the race. That particular restart, we fired off pretty good, and we were running side by side with him, and I push, I was pushing – I was over my head and driving over my head for a couple corners there. But I thought, man, maybe, I, maybe I'll – maybe he'll concede the position. And um, we kind of got – I kind of put myself in a bad position coming off of two where my angle wasn't good. Back slipped around. Uh, I corrected up into him. That sent him into the wall, and uh, we both suffered pretty bad damage there. I think I might have gotten the fence as well. It hurt us uh, both, but it hurt him more in terms – I think I actually finished in front of him in the race. And so um, I kind of walked out of there. I did. A, I, I remember doing a post-race or a post-crash interview as well 
Um, and I kind of walked out of there thinking, you know, me and Matt had Matt had a lot of respect from Mark Martin. All types of people in the series were like, man, this guy's good. He's smooth. And I had proven in that moment that I still had some flaws, right? That, man, you're, not, you're just not supposed to make those mistakes. Mm-hmm. And um, Matt wasn't making those mistakes. So um, I felt pretty silly, but at the same time really lucky to have gotten out of there without losing points to Matt because he was going to definitely win that day. Uh, next one's from Rocket Rick. Uh, you said you might go tailgate as a fan at North Wilkesboro. Uh, what would be your perfect tailgate in terms of like beer, food, and friends? Oh yeah. Uh, well, I think you gotta have a little sun drop in the cooler. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, just uh, obviously some some sun sun drop, uh, some high rock vodka, some mixers, and some some beers. And uh, uh, I always like brats. Yeah. I was kind of a brat guy for a long time tacos so ground beef um we had uh when i was uh when i was in the night in the like late 90s and all the way through the thousands we ate tacos on friday and then we did brats on saturday and then sunday was just like a simple sandwich because you didn't want to take too too many risks before you getting in the car but um it, every week it was tacos brats tacos brats um and it showed i'm speaking of me personally not you Dale. Yeah, well, i'm yeah. telling you we ate tacos friday brats saturday and i mean tore them up oh, oh, man. Yeah. so good with sun drop in the bottles yeah. in the glass bottles yeah. that's yeah. right so um those those are probably my my favorites but uh, for the, if if you're if you if it's in the evening, you know, and you're spending the night or whatever, man, you gotta have some steaks, some mm, steaks, steaks and Wilson. Can anybody say that Worcestershire sauce? <laughs> no, you nailed <laughs> it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> All right, our last question's from Bugsy. Uh, it seems there's uh, there's video from most NASCAR races in the '80s, uh, but do you find it odd that there's no video that exists of the 1981 Miller High Life 300 Bush Series race at Charlotte Motor Speedway that Gary Ballou won? Yeah, I do. So when Gary was here uh, way way back when we did his episode, we were all talking about that post show. We we're standing right here in this room going because uh, they were they're creating a documentary for him and they're like man we'd love to get some footage of that race and i was like i have footage of all the races right and i'm thinking surely i've got it i'm thinking in my head i've got that race and i can't believe that they don't have it because i have it if i have it why can't you know it should be easy to find right i could probably google it right now or, or find it on youtube nope it's, it doesn't exist um i've seen foot i swear i've seen footage of that race Maybe like you know whether it was a uh, new high, you know race highlights from uh, from the local news, or something like that. But there is footage of that race that exists, but there is no cov- there's no like broadcast of the race that you can find. Uh, I definitely don't have it in my catalog, and I think I've got probably ninety percent of what's out there in terms of any any kind of race broadcast from the you know sixties seventies all the way through the eighties and nineties. So. Um, and, and, and pretty much everything else is on YouTube that you, that you, that would be, you know, that would be out there. I don't think there's really much out there, you know, those little Facebook groups and stuff that those guys get together and they, they, they trade back and forth. And some of the rare races, like they, they don't want them to leak, you know what I mean? They want them to stay in those little pockets of, of the internet that really, really love collecting and, and cataloging those races. So I think everything's out there now. I don't think there's anything missing. So if it, 
if it exists, it would probably be like a WSOC race highlights or something like that on 6 o'clock news. And that would probably be it. Mm. All right. We'll see. Thank you, Xfinity and Xfinity X5 for everything you do. Great supporters of our podcast. Great supporters of NASCAR and everything they do in the Xfinity series. Uh, I'm a customer and really enjoy the service. And um, hope you guys will check that out as well. If you're need, if you having trouble or, or want to improve your service, uh, Xfinity X5 is definitely where I'd send you. Thanks for sending your quest, uh, questions to at Xfinity Racing on Twitter, and uh, we're we're um, we're thrilled uh, we're thrilled to have them as a as a supporter of our show. That's right, and don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel if you have not already. The Dirty Mo Media YouTube channel, we appreciate it. All right, everybody, there it is. Uh, awesome episode three ninety two is in the books. Um, Mike, guess what? What's up? Guess what? what? I'm going to be doing play by play this weekend. Oh, yeah. Oh, really? So, yeah, I'm excited about that. Um, just a lot of great stuff to be able to talk about. Play-by-play this weekend at Michigan. I hope to see everybody there. The uh, yeah. Sundrop. Cup race, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, wow. Mike, yes. He's doing cup racing. All right. He's a play- play-by-play guy. Uh, what are you going to do? Great announcement with the late mile stock car. We're going to yes. be racing in North Wilsboro. Sundrop, excited about that, guys. Just, you know, I can't tell you how, how pumped I am about how all that came together. Didn't think it was going to happen. Uh, here we are. Here we are, though. Um Bringing it back from uh, 1993. There you go. Man, how many years? I, how what many, is that, almost 30? Almost 30. Oh, my God. <laughs> is that I'm right? Old. Yes. That's old, man. I'm old. <laughs> That's old. That, that puts the More than old. me. That's Yikes. right. That's right. right. <laughs> More oh than God. people in this room. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Alex, what year were you born? 96. Holy crap. Oh, geez. You were well on your way in 96. <laughs> no, I don't know about that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, man. Well, listen. <laughs> hey, and tonight when this podcast drops, you'll be at the mod I just race. died inside. <laughs> um, what did you say? You'll be at the mod race tonight. Uh, yeah, going to the racetrack. Going to the racetrack for this week. Uh, racing's happening at North Wilsboro. Check the calendar. Uh, go to NorthWilsboroSpeedway.com. Get your tickets. There's racing uh, throughout the month. And then the dirt races in October, obviously. But just a lot going on. Thank you, Randy Lanier, for coming all this way to tell your story. Randy's book, Survival of the Fastest, is going to be in stores. It comes out when? Today? I believe it comes so, out yeah. today. today. All right. Today it comes out. Survival of the Fastest. So if you want to know, obviously, more details about his story, just a fascinating guy. Survival of the Fastest. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank you uh, to Xfinity, Bojangles, uh, and Ally. Great partners here at Dirty Mo Media. And... Um, You guys have a great rest of the week. We'll see you soon. Check out Dirty Mode Media on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram.